my fellow Westorians. I'm about to practice and see how long I can hold that O. And make that a make that a thing. How <laughs> many really, O's really. can you break <laughs> How long is your O? Let's compare O's, friends. No, let's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome back to History <laughs> of Westeros podcast, where we're a little extra silly today this Sunday. Apparently, or at least I am. I can't speak for everyone else, but sometimes I try to. It doesn't I'm usually work silly. out very well, though. What's that? I'm less silly. So it <laughs> evens out, silly. I think. Well, I'll try to be extra silly then to make up for your lack of silliness. Your lack of silliness disturbs me. Then I will be extra less silly. <laughs> Crap. Make up for your extra My silliness. My work is cut out for me. <laughs> Sean, I see your drink is a, a strange yellowish, golden perhaps color. What is that thing? Milk of the poppy. <laughs> this is the, no wonder you're so serious. <laughs> Wait, no, that doesn't make sense. You should be so sleepy or passed out. <laughs> There he goes. Okay, he's passed out. This is the pina colada naked drink Mm. mixed with coconut pineapple sparkling ice mixed with peach mango bang Mm. mixed with classic Mountain Dew. And lots of opium, apparently. Yes. (laughs) Milk of the poppy. Same thing. That goes without saying. Or is that, no, milk of the poppy is more like heroin or morphine, right? I guess. Yeah, because it's white. I think they're all the same. Heroin comes from poppies. Came from the same thing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We've got lots of fun stuff to talk about. But first off, let me direct you to our friend Nina's blog, goodqueenally.tumblr.com. She has a lot of great notes for today. And if you head over to her page, you'll find an excellent post on Victorian and his firearm. The point she goes into is that perhaps it's better to think of Victorian's firearm from Makoro's point of view, as in it shows what Makoro can do and that's perhaps more important than what Vicarian can now do with this arm. The fact that Makoro can create that in other people might be the more important thing here. And that's a good point. That's a very good point. I think yeah, Makoro can do that again. Victorian, well, he's maybe a little stronger now. I don't know. It's a good point. We don't know for sure, but it's, it's, a, it's a great way to look at that situation maybe a little differently than you have. If the wrong person was in charge of this franchise, eventually there'd be 18 different people with flaming arms. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> All the main characters. And <laughs> yeah, that's very true. <laughs> so today, because we have so many great quotes and topics and characters to discuss, there's not a lot of real-life content today. Just like last week, there's not a whole lot of that. But we do have, yes, like I said, what we call them today, clanicdotes. That's right, clanicdotes. And 
As I said, the, the Klansmen are particularly quotable, especially with Tyrion in the mix. There's lots of great back and forth, lots of great dialogue. And that's how we're going to start today. The best real world comparison we can make to the Clans is the McPoyles. <laughs> the McPoyles. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's true. They are very clannish. You're right. They are very clannish. The McPoyles from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, they they're definitely incestuous. They all seem to come from a common ancestor. In fact, one of the first things we're going to do is define a clan. So you're going to see even more how that lines up or not so much if you don't know who the McPoyles are, but the point will still be made and you'll understand it in reference to A Song of Ice and Fire. So we like to start with the trivia question. Today, we're merging the fact that we have so many great quotes with our trivia question and we're going to have the trivia question actually come in form of a quote. All movement stops. Tyrion saw the glint of moonlight on metal. Our mountain, a voice called out from the trees, deep and hard and unfriendly. Our goat. Your goat, Tyrion agreed. Who are you? Indeed. Who is he? That's the first time we hear a clansman speak in the books. So answer at the end who that is. So yeah, first off, a definition to help understand the words we're wielding. The difference between a clan and a tribe. I never really thought about this. And I was making notes for this episode. I was like, hey. Better, uh, well, I'll look that up because I really don't know the difference. So, a tribe is socially, ethnically, and politically cohesive, smaller than a state, larger than a band. So, your next question would be, well, what's a band? A band is 30 to 50 people. It's a smaller group than a tribe, but has the similar definition except for the size. I guess I've gone to see a lot of non bands then. <laughs> <laughs> they did not have 30 to 50 uh, people. I've never seen a band perform with 30 to 50 people either. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> unless you count an orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> but that's an orchestra, not a band. A clan is a group of people all descended from a common ancestor, in, according to anthropology, in fact or belief. In other words, they don't actually have to be descended, they just have to think they are. <laughs> and there's patroclans and matroclans, which is patroclan would be if that common ancestor is a man. And the Matra clan is if it's a woman. So that, that one person that they descend from. A Scottish clan, the clans are a bit more defined there. It's more of a traditional social group of families in the Scottish Highlands specifically that have a common hereditary chieftain. So it's a little more specific. And Nina adds that Rose Leslie, as in the actress who played Egret, her own father is the head of a branch of Clan Leslie, which is a Lowlands clan uh, of Scotland, which I'm not sure what the difference between Lowlands and Highlands is for these clans, but probably just a regional thing, probably not a whole lot of differences. Don't let a Scottish clansman hear me say that. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really, this is the same concept as like, we all descend from Land the Clever or Garth Greenhand or, yeah, right? That's just the same same Yeah, I was going to say like a lot of words, there's there's nuance and variation. It's hard to have it, even if you think of a family, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your children. Your aunts, your uncles, nephews, cousins, are they all part of your family? I think so. But I think that starts to get to be a little bit more of what a clan is. I think of a clan as like the Johnsons are getting together for a family reunion. So all the distant relatives are all part of the same clan. And they would all have a common ancestor. But lots of other people that they might not think of as being their clan would also have that same common ancestor. So a clan might exclude more people. than And a family might have people that aren't even... Blood relatives, yeah, like someone might be considered, or, yeah, or just like someone really close to you, you might think of sure. as part of your family. Yeah. So when you owe something to, or that you or take responsibility for, or whatever, an adopted person, yeah, so, I mean that's still part of the family, but there's no blood, there's no yeah. blood connections in there, yeah. And that's but, yeah, that's but really, that, I, in my mind, the Lannisters are a clan, the Starks are a clan, you yeah, know? like yeah, House and, is just a different word for it, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, 
And that led me to think of something else, by the way. Do the clans of the veil, do they call themselves clans or is that something that other people call them? Because we, we've talked about the difference in that before. Do they think of themselves as clans or families or houses? That's a great that question. I'm not that, sure they call themselves clans. I think they do, but I'm not sure that we have a self-referential point. We'll have to keep an eye out for that. I, that's a great question. I don't know if they call themselves clans. I just assumed they did, but I didn't. Now that you're asking, I don't think I actually thought about that. Yeah, because I wonder if it's something that noble lords of established houses wouldn't want to call them a house. Yeah. That, that's too good for them. Yeah. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? And so they call them their clan, we're a house. Like, I don't know for sure if that's the case, but... That's a great point because the clans of the North, the mountain clans of the North who are treated with more esteem for reasons we'll get into shortly are considered houses or petty lords in some cases, which is the same thing as a minor lord. But that's basically just because the North agrees. Like they they hold them in higher esteem. I think that if the clans of the Vale got along with the Andal rulers there, they would probably be given titles and things like that as well. But as we'll find out, there's a lot of animosity in this, in that back and forth. Per Nina, we have a quote that says they do call themselves clans. Okay, cool. Chella says, Lowland lords have lied to the clans before. Yes, and that is a... I'm glad it's that particular quote, too, because that's an important one for this episode. The clans have been lied to by the lowland lords many times. And in, in fact, we'll see examples of that from the books directly. Sachella's warning was accurate, was uh, on point there. Nina says, what's notable about the clans, especially in comparison to the free folk of the lands beyond the wall, is the high level of organization that seems to be a consistent feature of their societies. These clansmen come from very specific socio-political groups, from very specific, very unique cultural traditions and histories. And given clansmen, or rather any given clansman, isn't just from the mountain clansmen or the mountains of the moon. It's a specific clan that has specific background and cultural uniqueness. Black ears, painted dogs, or whichever. And seemingly across the board, these tribes, which consider familial descent, the real critical identifier, something maybe Norse naming conventions where you have Sigurd, Eric's daughter, right? Or, yeah, because you're a daughter of Eric. So here we have Every single clansman we meet from the Vale, not from the North, not from the other places, introduces themselves as the son or daughter of someone else. Chella, daughter of Chake. Gunthor, son of Gurn, right? They all, that's, that's how they introduce themselves. And so they very much honor their elder. And that's a pretty unique feature. I mean, the, that naming convention, of course, plenty of families honor their elders, but not this specific way. So that's pretty cool. So- Uhtred definitely was a clansman. Of the veil. <laughs> yes. Very easy for him to trust his descendants. Like, ah, so I was the son of Uhtred and he was the son of... Yeah, it's real easy. It's only how many Uhtreds they have to go back. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as we see with Shaga, for example, he also names his grandfather. And maybe the one exception to this that's similar is the Dothraki. The Dothraki occasionally say son of, but they don't say it quite as often, I don't think. Doth, definitely Drogo says son of Barbo. but I think he only says that like twice, maybe not a lot. It doesn't. It doesn't say it almost every time. Like he's like Shaga mentions his father a bunch of times. <laughs> I wonder if a difference there is that a Dothraki will invoke his father's name if his father was of some legendary status, oh. where a Vale clansman will invoke his father's name 
no matter, matter what, what, just because that's part of his identity. Yeah, that's a great possibility there. I do like that. That would that could that would very much fit. And of course, these societies appreciate these individual shows of strength, like Timmet's eye gouging. But those things are different, right? No, the other clans don't do that. But they all do this name thing this name your father or mother thing. And this does seem to fit numerically since clans are relatively small from the real world. And now we're not sure just how much George is hewing to the anthropological earth definition of clans. It seems to be pretty close though. So he brings 300 clansmen to the Battle of the Green Fork with him from four different clans. So, you know, roughly 70-ish, 75, 75 per clan, roughly. I was sure it wasn't even like that, but... That's he bought. He brought two bands of clans. <laughs> two bands of clans. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> there. And if it seems maybe unrealistic that these tribes would exist for so long, these clans would exist for so long. Well, there's still Stone Age tribes in the world today. So I don't know that that's necessarily unrealistic. Now, a lot of those, cl- a lot of those real world ones are super isolated and completely cut off from contact. And there's like laws keeping things that way, which is not the case here. But still, the real-world analog is pretty strong. And just in case there's any confusion, there's a number of clans throughout Westeros, uh, the various clans among the free folk. But not all free folk belong to a clan. It seems like all the mountain clans of the Vale, they're all clansmen. But the free folk have a little more diversity amongst their group structures, I think. Like the Thens, I wouldn't call a clan. I think that's more of a tribe. But there's Ice River clans, specifically called Ice River clans, and I think they do fit that. And the Hill Mountain clans of the North, which we've mentioned, like Wall, Nori, and Flint, and like they're respected and they're chiefs. They're called chiefs, but they're considered petty lords by like the Starks and the Manderleys and all that. And of course, our subject, the Vale clans, have their own little corner, their own set of differences. And they arguably, I didn't count, but they arguably appear as much as any of the others, maybe even more. It's easy to forget that because a lot of that's in book one and very, very, very little of it is in books four and five. Whereas the hill clans and the wildlings, as in the free folk, are very prominent in book five especially. So in terms of recency bias, we've been seeing a lot more of them in terms of book chronology. And, well, that's where we're at. Okay, so let's have the first mentions, like we do so often, from the world of Eyes and Fire. Quote. The clans of the Mountains of the Moon are clearly descendants of the first men who did not bend the knee to the Andals, and so were driven into the mountains. Furthermore, there are similarities in their customs to the customs of the wildlings beyond the wall, such as bride-stealing, a stubborn desire to rule themselves, and the like. And the first man origins of the wildlings are indisputable. So we had a lot of early Vale history in our episode on House Royce. So if you've listened to that, you have a bit of a primer on some of this. And if not, well, check that out. It will add some additional context to this region and these characters and and people. The bride-stealing aspect in the case of clans, based on what we just said, is almost necessary for clan survival. Not that that justifies it, but just saying, after all, they claim to be from a common ancestor. And well, you need people outside your clan to breed with or suffer the consequences of incest. Yes, indeed. I could say it's almost necessary for them to be more uh, romantic and <laughs> yes. outgoing and acceptant of others' cultures. And then maybe they could find... A- <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good... I like your framing better. <laughs> now, during the tale, explaining why Harry the heir is 
well, the heir to Sweet Robin, there's a rundown on what happened to all the errands because John had, John Aaron, that is, had a sister named Alice who married a man named Ellis. Yes, Alice married Ellis, A-L-Y-S to E-L-Y-S. George having a little fun there. They had nine children, one of whom gave birth to Harry. So that is his connection to the Aarons. But what about all the others? Why aren't there others in front of him? Well, they all died or became septas or silent sisters. One of them might still be alive, but she's unavailable, shall we say. She was going to marry a Bracken, but on her way to the wedding, she was taken by the burned men and carried off. So, yeah, that's not a, a fate to wish on someone. And Nina says, not to mention, if all the clans all rigorously avoided intermixing with each other and jealously guard their independence against each other, there's probably a pretty small pool of just regular marriage candidates, non-stolen brides and things like that. Yeah, it's it's a structural flaw <laughs> with this society for sure. <laughs> Not judging, but that's definitely going to have some bad outcomes. Okay, I'm judging. I think I'm it's judging. safe to judge, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> now that quote mentioned first men heritage that they share, undoubtedly that's true. There's really no need to wonder on that point. They're all first men, the ones beyond the wall, the ones here still in the mountains. And that gives them some things in common, yet so much time has passed before they were separated. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But people still call them wildlings. The Vale clans are called wildlings by people in the Vale. Maybe not as often. It's interchangeable with clansmen there, whereas really no one calls the wildlings of the North beyond the wall clansmen. They do call the Hill tribes clansmen. So it's confusing. <laughs> Even though some of the tribes beyond the wall are properly called clans, you don't really hear the, the brothers, the Night's Watch, calling them that. Not that I can recall. But that's because these terms are a little loose. Sean, earlier, you're using a definition of clan. The one I gave was the anthropological definition, not the common usage term, which what you were saying is more of a common usage, which I think is more, more proper, because that's the one that people would use in common parlance and more likely what George is, is using as well. But they still have, it's still good to define our terms. It's worth noting, too, it might be... Just generally, people in different regions use slightly different terminology. Yeah, that's true. But also, I think that I can I can imagine that people in the Vale are more aware of the specific different clans. Mm -hmm. There's a more finite that's number of true. them. They're more aware of the differences between them and their histories and so on. Where, at least in the Vale, wildlings to the north, they're all just wildlings. They're all just the same, right? They're you more see them very of often. A, yeah. Right. It's easier for them to think of them as being more monolithic. Mm -hmm. Whereas people on the wall might have better knowledge. Yeah. And people who first go to the wall might still have that Southern mentality. But the longer they're there, the more they'll start to think of them as Thins and Crowfoot. I, I can't, the, the different specific clans rather than wildlings in general. Yeah, that's a great point. What yeah. Are the, what are the, who am I trying to think of? A Crowfoot? The uh, Hornfoots. Hornfoots, yeah. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Crow food, maybe, was the other word you're crossing up there. <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah. <laughs> and the Thens are a perfect example, Sean. I'm glad you mentioned that because Thens, at one point, we notice that the Thens, John realizes that some of the Thens have never seen the wall before. That's how far north they live. They're so far, and John's like, wow, yeah, the, the, the wall is the end of the world, even for them. Like, for him, it's the, for people from the south, it's the end of the world, in a sense. For the Thens, it's the end of the world coming the other direction. There is no barrier like that. The barrier in the veil like that is what separates the veil from the rest of the world. But both the clans and the and all descendants are on the same side of it. So you're right, Sean, that they have a, a close a closer relationship to the veil clans because they know who they are 
more specifically in there that those differences are more upfront. Not that the people beyond the wall aren't just as diverse. It's just, you're, you're right. It's perception-wise. If the Thens live that far away, then most of the Night's Watch have never seen a Then, Just like the Thens have not, most of them haven't seen the wall. So, yeah. And the Northern Clans, as we said, the Northern Clans are respected and share substantial culture with the rest of the North. The Free Folk are not respected, but they do share substantial culture with a lot of the North. But the Vale Clans get neither. They aren't respected and they don't share culture with the rest of the Vale. And worse, the free folk have relative control over where they live, right? They're beyond the wall. No one other than other free folk and like the others, I guess, are, are, telling them, are controlling them, right? The Night's Watch every once in a while sends rangers out, but they're not until Gior Mormont's great ranging. For the most part, they just stay on their side, minus a few rangers going back and forth. The hill tribes of the north live in peace and harmony and trade with and have respect of the other people in the north. So that's a huge difference for the Vale clans. They live in an area that they don't rule that's hostile to them. Yet they're the original people <laughs> from that land. So they not only have this being pushed back and held down into poverty, they have this anger towards the people who have because they're the natives, right? There's this oppression from people who probably still seem like conquerors, even though they've been there for probably 6,000 years or something like that, because they're, they've been oppressing them this whole time. It's their home that was stolen from them, and they probably haven't forgotten that. The North remembers, the Vale probably remembers too, because these are the same people. So the free folk are not, the suppression against the free folk is a lot less active. One interesting thing here is that we don't see the Vale clans worshiping the old gods. Like, man, that doesn't mean they don't, but it doesn't come up at any point. We're told werewoods don't grow well in the Vale, but really it's not the Vale that they don't grow well in that we know of. It's the Eerie. No one, they tried to plant a, a, a werewood in the Eerie and that didn't work. That doesn't mean it didn't work elsewhere. That said, if there are werewoods in the high mountain passes, which I guess there are, they haven't been mentioned. One of the clans is called Sons of the Tree. That sounds, I mean, how... Of course, my first guess there will be werewolves, right? That's the kind of tree they're referring to. But I wouldn't be super surprised if that turned out to be a false guess, miss. So interesting stuff there for sure. The difference in religion is a big deal. Obviously, that's, that's a, a point that, that dry, exacerbates the differences between these peoples, right? Even if they don't follow the old gods worship as much as they used to, they definitely don't worship the seven, right? That's even more explicit, I would think. Worth noting that, not to take away from your point, because that is a, you know, clear difference in cultures, but it's not a deal breaker. Like in the North, true, they still true. worship the old gods and not right. the sevens. You're right. It's not a deal breaker. Absolutely true. That's a great point. Like there is plenty of getting along between worshipers of the old gods and the new. And there are plenty that, that believe in both or believe they both deserve to be honored. So with all this said, I mean... You've got a very forsaken, oppressed people with a, not a lot of optimism, and that makes them dangerous. They don't sell their lives dearly because they don't have a lot of value on their, put a lot of value on their own lives because their lives are hard and difficult and shaped by toughness and strength. So you can't hold back. You can't be cautious in an environment like that. And that creates sort of, as a, from a world-building perspective, these are the ghosts of the past. This is the karma sown by the Andal invaders that their ancestors must deal with. They created this situation. Whenever a 
lady is kidnapped or a caravan is raided, it goes back to the original Andal invaders destroying the ancestors of these people, destroying their homes, destroying their way of life and all that. But, but despite that, hearing that, it's almost ironic to hear when we lay it all out that they're a great source of humor and humanity despite this savagery and this desperation. I mean, the running cut off your manhood and feed it to the goats joke maybe isn't for everyone, but it's, I mean, it's meant to be funny and lighthearted. Shaga has a great sense of humor, right? Timot doesn't, okay, but he's the outlier, right? Even Tyrion and Bronn managed to joke about him, though. Not within earshot, of course. Here's the joke. Timot's fellow burned men were so awed by his choice of an eye that they promptly named him a Red Hand, which seemed to be some sort of a war chief. I wonder what their king burned off, Tyrion said to Bronn when he heard the tale. <laughs> and of course... Bronn grabs his crotch in response. Yeah, <laughs> they start laughing. So, yeah. And, and of course, they have no king. They have red hands, as it says, some kind of war chief, some sort of war chief. Whether there is some sort of ruler above Timmet, we don't know, like a more experienced red hand. We don't really know how that works within the clans. The, the inner workings of a lot of these clans isn't described because we don't see the full tribes. We see their, like a lot of the warriors, but we don't see like their home the women, except for the women warriors. We don't see the children. We don't see, yeah, we don't see like their day-to-day. That's not, we're, we're seeing them on campaign, basically, so, which is not their day-to-day lives. Clearly, Victorian is going to be the new red hand for <laughs> men. Zing, that's true. <laughs> they would definitely respect him. Be like, whoa, look at that guy. Yeah. Whoa, his arm is still on fire. That is so, how, man, how'd you do that? I need one of those. Timmet would be all, he'd be like, yeah. Bring me, bring me that guy. Let's, let's talk, man. <laughs> What's your secret? <laughs> Something I didn't think of, I just can't believe I didn't think of it until just now, but that I, I wonder about the clans. I, I appreciate Nina was able to find that quote clarifying that they do think of themselves as clans, but do they have house words, clan words? Yeah, I don't know. Do they have, do they have sigils? Do they have any identifying? I don't think they have sigils, but they do have things that identify their clan. Like I imagine the painted dogs maybe have tattoos or something like that or, or some sort of dye, some sort of herb they rub on themselves like woad. I was thinking that they had painted dogs. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's also neat that... That's just, that what you, that's just what you call it when you paint your toenail. <laughs> <laughs> they all have painted toenails. If you paint your, your breasts, they're painted dugs, right? Um, dugs? Dugs, yeah, that's is like that a, a name for a utter. Slang? It's, it's oh. slang for utter, yeah. I've never heard that. Isn't that it? Or maybe I'm making that up. I don't know. <laughs> that's what you call Painted <laughs> utters. Well, we'll just say that. We'll just skip the possibly wrong euphemism there. <laughs> so it's reflective of Tyrion's worldview that he's, he says king. He's, jo- he's joking, like, I wonder what their king burned off. I think he knows they don't have a king, but this is still his default way of thinking, that everything has to fit in this ar- aristocratic setting that he's used to. He could have said chief yeah. or leader yeah. or something. which would have yeah. been more probably closer to accurate. Like We see the same thing with Solis and Stannis and a lot of the king's men and queen's men trying to force the free folk to follow these dicks. Well, this guy is the descendant of Raymond Redbeard. Clearly, he's their king. Like, But no one sees him as king. You can't just make him king like that, can you? Well, they're going to try. And that brings us to another point here. In a lot of ways, the the mountain clans are to Tyrion what the free folk are to Jon. Now, the free folk interact with a lot more POV characters. 
but still, they have that sort of role that they are the main point of contact among POV characters is John for the Free Folk. He's the one that they know the best, the one they trust the most. Tyrion with the Klansmen is the same point. There's really not anyone else who's even close. With John, maybe there's a few of the other, like, a few of the other brothers have made friends with some of the Free Folk, but Tyrion's really on his own here. Maybe Bronn? The other ones that might have been are have been killed. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Now, Nina points out there is a major difference, though, that John has a lot more, or a lot more humane view of what these people are. He sees them as rough equals. Well, Tyrion sees them as an opportunity. Like, he's not mean to them. He doesn't denigrate them, but not much anyway. He values them in ways that most people wouldn't. But John, I think John is, is, deserves higher praise for how he treats the free folk then. I agree John deserves higher praise, but I don't know so much that it's Tyrion thinks any particularly less of the clansmen than it Tyrion just thinks of anyone as oh, someone to use or manipulate yeah. or get in his side or whatever. So, especially when life is on the line, to be fair. Yeah, that's true. Because Tyrion did have to... Tyrion was more put in a, in a tough spot. Now, John was put in a pretty tough spot too with Corrin Halfhand and, well, you have to kill me and join them. So <laughs> they both had this, they've got us surrounded. We, we have like, John joined them, whereas Tyrion got them to join him. It's pretty, it's similar in that way, but they were both like, I got to do what I got to do to survive here. And then from then, it's, the stories go in their own direction. But yeah, they have that sort of similar beginning where it really frames their character too. Tyrion becomes their leader in a sense. And you're asked like, do they have house words? Well, they're the ones that start calling him half-man. Like, other people call him half-man, but that, they're the first ones that use that term. And they yell that in battle. That's their battle cry because they're following him. They're like, well, half-man, that's who their leader is. So, they, so that kind of tells me that they didn't have some general battle cry that they use because they were yelling half-man. Because <laughs> we'll see, like, when Arya and Hot Pie are fighting Armory Lorch's men, she yells Winterfell and Hot Pie yells Hot Pie. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just yell whatever comes, whatever inspires you. Yeah. So they didn't have some default. They were like, yeah, this is our leader's Tyrion. We're going to, we're going to yell for him. <laughs> it's also worth noting to give John a little extra praise uh, relative to Tyrion anyway. They're both quote unquote doing what they have to do to survive, right? But Tyrion is doing almost everything just to survive. John has a bigger goal. Yeah. He's trying to help out the Night's Watch. That's true. He, yeah. He, he has a more, something beyond his own survival at stake. So. That's true. That's very true. Tyr- Tyrion's not doing this to like rescue the Lannisters or <laughs> stabilize the realm or anything yeah. like that. He's, He's almost himself. purely just trying to save his own hide, yeah. which is understandable, yeah. but it is something that John is doing beyond Tyrion. Definitely. Yeah. You're right. That's, a, that's an important distinction. Now, here's the first mention of them the clans, in A Song of Ice and Fire, as often it is, we hear about something the first time through Catelyn's POV. This is a Game of Thrones Catelyn 5. Yet the mountain road was perilous. Shadow cats prowled those passes, rock slides were common, and the mountain clans were lawless brigands, descending from the heights to rob and kill and melting away like snow whenever the knights rode out from the vale in search of them. Even John Aaron as great a lord as any the Eyrie had ever known, had always traveled in strength when he crossed the mountains. And can I say something real quick? Oh, yeah. I just want to give a clarification on, on the word dugs. I was, I, I was not saying it wasn't a word. I wasn't calling you wrong, to be clear, but a bunch of people seem to take it as me saying that. It is a word, to be clear, which I knew, but it's in The Song of Ice and Fire. George uses the term even. I, I, I searched it on a search of ice and fire, a quote from George and Danny Five Game of Thrones. 
underneath their painted leather vests, their withered dugs swayed back and forth. Anyways, I was laughing at it because it made me think of the word jugs. Dugs and jugs. And it's also, it. it's also been used in Shakespeare and other stuff. But m- most importantly, it was in um, A Song of Ice and Let's Fire. just spell it D-J-U-G-S. Jugs. Like gent. Yeah. So that passage proved to be pretty straightforward foreshadowing or foreshadow catting as it is. Yes. Cat and Tyrion and Bronn and Sir Roderick and the rest have a terrible time. Many are killed. Yeah, so Catelyn thinks about how bad it is and they actually go on that path and it is indeed that bad. I'm going to ask a question. Yeah. Net quote, it says, John Aaron, as great a lord as the Eyrie had ever known. Mm-hmm. The, the original artist, Aaron, Aaron is yeah. that his name? Mm-hmm. He wasn't actually a Lord of the Eerie. The Eerie didn't exist, right? Correct. Yes. Right? So that, that, that was my instincts. Yeah. It was like, John was greater than artists. Oh, wait. Semantics, there was no yes. Eerie yet. Well, it's just as great a Lord, like equal to. But still, you're right. That's, that's still a great point. I praise for John Aaron yeah. in one way or the other, mm-hmm. I think. Very true, very true. And we can build on that point. First, though, these hit and run tactics that they're so good at is something Tyrion realizes is of great use for them in battle. So we'll see that. He's going to use them for that purpose against Stannis later, and it's going to be extremely effective. But consider that bit about John Aaron that we just brought up that Sean questioned. If John Aaron's such a great leader, which I'm not questioning that, but it goes to show how difficult these clansmen are. Here's another quote from A Game of Thrones, Catelyn Six, a.k.a. the very next chapter. Clans have grown bolder since Lord John died, Sir Donald said. He was a stocky youth of 20 years, earnest and homely with a wide nose and a shock of thick brown hair. If it were up to me, I would take a hundred men into the mountains, root them out of their fastness, teach them some sharp lessons. But your sister has forbidden it. Some good George misdirection here. Lysa is paranoid, and that tends to be the attitude we think of when we think of her. But if the clans were so easy to beat, they wouldn't have lasted thousands of years. John, If John could have done it, he would have. I mean, the man was 70 years old. Did he ever teach the mountain clans a lesson of this type? Doesn't sound like it because it's too hard. It's too difficult. He knows that it would be costly. It wouldn't accomplish much. Or for whatever reasons, he didn't do it. And probably his reasoning was good. I'm not sure that I've guessed the right reasons, but given his actions, safe to say, he didn't think it was a good idea. I wonder if if he really is a great lord, in my opinion, would have some respect for the clans. Maybe. You wouldn't yeah. feel they should be eradicated. They're humans trying to make their own living. Yeah. Maybe the threat of them keeps other people at bay. Okay. Maybe it it's, makes it a little more... Maybe they're like a... They rely on the Lord accidental more. force of defense. You need the Lord's protection more just because they exist. And so that... that oh, I didn't even think of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe. That's, we need the Vale Lords... Make sure you support them or the mountain clans will come to get you. <laughs> I can also imagine maybe it could or even should be done, but that John Aaron and all the Lords of the Eyrie aren't that great. They're too holed up in their ivory tower to worry about what's happening to their people. And the, I don't know. And they're just maybe not very judgmental, but uh, I think they're just not very equipped either. Like their nightly accoutrement is very inappropriate for an excursion like this. You know what I mean? That's a good point. Yeah, a bunch of. <laughs> Big horses and heavy plate mail trying to get up some cliffside. Yeah, like, like, it's not going to That's not going to work, right? So Lysa's right. Like, she's wrong that she needs those men around her son. Their clansmen aren't going to penetrate the Erie and steal Lord Sweet Rob. And that's not going to happen. But she is right that it would probably, maybe by accident, but she is probably right that sending men against the clans wouldn't accomplish much. And it might be a, a failure. It might just not work. And then it would look even worse. And so you just led men to die for what? You just gave them more confidence. So it's a stalemate. And that's 
basically why this situation has endured for so long. Because yeah, we have Knights of the Vale who are just poorly, they're great on a battlefield, but yeah, climbing around, clambering around mountains and heavy, heavily wooded areas and snow, snow-capped peaks. It's a horrible time to be in heavy armor. War horses, no good. No good there. I wonder if there's a certain element of wanting to have the mountain clans around to like blood your men on. Oh, uh, yeah. Some more of experience. Yeah, maybe, maybe. That's a good point because there's a lot of, definitely a lot of militaries in history have fallen in quality because of lack of people to fight, which of course, from a world perspective, we say, well, that seems like a good thing. From an engineering, uh, just taking the ethics out of it, just seeing how, whether a military is strong or not and, and tracing point A to point B. Yeah, like the Mongols, for example, for a while, they, they stayed really, really strong for a long time. They started to fall off as they or their people were less nomadic and that harsh environment that made them so tough and strong ceased to exist where the tough, strong soldiers coming from, right? Yeah. So yeah, if you don't have a great enemy to fight, then yeah, where's that toughness going to come from? Worth noting that for most of history, you didn't have standing armies. Armies weren't trained much. They weren't standing in the first place. True. They were just farmers that suddenly got rallied together. Whereas modern armies that are the best armies are just practicing day in and day out. They're making sure equipment works. They're doing push-ups. They're running and everything else. Yeah. Um, Only knights do yeah. that, like the like you said, the like the regular levies wouldn't do that. Where these mountain clans, you know, they're they're like fighting pretty, maybe a little bit like knights in terms of how often they practice warfare and and actually engage. In Even training. their daily lifestyle would be a sort of training. Their yeah. stamina and their strength and their dexterity or agility would be constantly getting tested. And, and their culture really encourages that from a very early level. Like right away, you're like, well, boy, if you want to make it in this world, you better be tough and strong and fast. It's kind of like the free folk beyond the wall. Same kind of same kind of attitude. This world is too harsh for the slow and uh, patient. You need civilization for things like that, I suppose. And in fact, we see their horses in action. Tyrion's very impressed by their climbing skills. They're like half goat. I don't mean that literally. Like they, their behavior, not their, not their breeding. They're not literally breeding horses with goats that I know of. Imagine th- those are awesome. You wouldn't want that on a pitched battlefield, like a tiny horse, like charge, like picture like Gregor, who's bigger than his horse. But in the mountains, you'd much rather have one of these skinny climbing horses than a big arm- war horse with armor on it, right? Yeah, pretty straightforward. Like the home field advantage for these Vale clans is so big. And the reason they can't advance societally is if they start building like towns and villages, well, then the Knights of the Vale have a specific target they can come and burn and it's not their advantage of being able to move and stay hidden and, and nomadic is lost when they start to settle. But that's also their path out of this permanent cultural poverty situation. But the, the Vale Knights won't let them have that. I, I don't think anyway. But long ago, if we're going back in time, they didn't fight or live like this, but it's very far back in time. So let's talk some history. This is the fall of the first men at the Battle of Seven Stars. Attacked from front and rear, the last great host of the first men of the Vale was cut to pieces. Thirty lords had come to fight for Robar Royce that day. Not a one survived. And though the singers say the High King slew foes by the score, in the end, he too was slain. Some say Ser Artis killed him, whilst others name Lord Ruthermont, or Lucian Templeton, the Knight of Nine Stars. The Corbrays of Hart's home have always insisted that it was Sir Jamie Corbray who dealt the mortal blow. And for proof, they point to Lady Forlorn, reclaimed for House Corbray after the battle. 
such is the tale of the Battle of the Seven Stars, as it is told by the Singers and the Septons. A stirring story, to be sure, but the scholar must ask how much of it is true. We shall never know. All that is certain is that King Robar II of House Royce met Sir Artis Aaron in a great battle at the foot of the giant's lance, where the king died and the falcon knight dealt the first men a blow from which they never recovered. Yeah, so that started it. That was the, the breaking of the power of the first men in the veil. Anita wonders, what kind of cultural memory do the mountain clans have of King Robar? Do they remember him as you know, a, a fallen hero? Have they forgotten about him entirely? Do they not care because he's a Royce and the Royces are part of the, the Andal lords, even though they have a very strong first man heritage? Is he a martyr or just forgotten? Yeah, not sure. Maybe he was a fool. Maybe they look at him as a failure, someone who should have won. Who knows? Maybe different takes from different clans, but maybe they've just forgotten about him so long ago. There definitely could be clans that once claimed descent from him, right? There could be some clans that, since they have a common ancestor, that's a feature of clans, maybe some of them or one of them claims descent directly from him. Of course, that would be separate from House Royce, which of course also still exists, but they would have a common ancestor. That would be really neat. Yeah, we descend from House Royce uh, and House Royce obviously descends from House Royce. We're, we're family, man. I don't think that, I don't think that happy meeting is coming. <laughs> I imagine Dennis finding out he's actually part of the McPoyle clan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> he might just, uh, he might not be able to handle that. So, so at, progressing from there, here's how we went from the, the breaking of the first men in the veil, the, the Andals winning to how that coalesced into the situation we find ourselves in now. Quote. The fate of the defeated was far crueler. As word of the victory spread across the narrow sea, more and more longships set sail from Andalos, and more and more Andals poured into the Vale and surrounding mountains. All of them required land, land the Andal lords were pleased to give them. Whenever the first men sought to resist, they were ground underfoot, reduced to thralls, or driven out. Their own lords, beaten, were powerless to protect them. Some of the first men surely survived by joining their own blood with that of the Andals, but many more fled westward to the high valleys and stony passes of the mountains of the moon. There, the descendants of this once proud people dwell to this very day, leading short, savage, brutal lives among the peaks as bandits and outlaws, preying upon any man fool enough to enter their mountains without a strong escort. Little better than the free folk beyond the walls, these mountain clans too are called wildling by the civilized. Yeah, it's as if they're an entire culture of broken men. Like an entire culture became broken men. They li- Remember, that's what we've seen. You're on the losing side of a battle. You have nowhere to go. You become... Entirely concerned with survival. And that means having to do violence, having no sense of ethics, just doing whatever it takes to survive. That's what these tribes have been in that state for, for so very long. He's saying tribe when I mean clan, but I'm, get that in there. So they, they don't have a purpose. They don't have a connection. Like we've talked about, maybe they don't even have their old, a lot of their old heritage has been lost. Yeah, it's, it's uh, kind of tragic. On one hand, they might be missing some of those things you say, but I I believe that they do still have a culture. They definitely have a way of like recognizing leaders and they have, I don't know how to say this, there is a structure. There is a sort of respect among themselves. Maybe they have to resort to violence to maintain their, their culture and maybe they're forced into this position. I guess what I'm trying to point out here is that we talked a lot in the beginning about the perspective of Yandel Mm -hmm. writing this book. 
that it, it's, it's skewed. Here, when he says they're no better than the wildlings of the north, so lowly of the wildlings of the north, no like, better it doesn't, than. Yeah, what is that? Yeah, yeah. It's very, very. <laughs> I mean, as, and as we have talked about in the scene, the wildlings of the north are not a monolith either. And some of those wildlings, some of those free folk, are more advanced when it comes to more complex when it comes to like hierarchy and like structure, which is not to say they're more advanced in other ways, but in that specific way. And Yandel barely knows about the Fens, for example. Like he knew, like he knows of a few things about them, but but hardly any. And why? And why would he? There's not like they've sent maesters up there to study them, right? <laughs> <laughs> I like, I like how his name said- is E. Yandel. It's like he's Ye and all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not Ye First Man. <laughs> Just where he says they lead short, savage, brutal lives. Like I, I wonder what he means by savage. Yeah. Like I bet they take good care of their kids. You know what I mean? Maybe, I bet they yeah. don't just walk around kicking puppies. You know what I mean? Yeah. They have to live their lives. They have emotions. Probably There's some of them do stuff. and some of them maybe don't like just like any other society. There's, I don't know if they're any better or worse on average, but yeah, maybe. But the the short, brutal part is probably true. Like they, by, by you know, having to steal and raid and suffer. Yeah, that part's probably... Tough, tough out the elements so they don't have like houses with fireplaces and such. Yeah, exactly. So the savage part is debatable. The short and brutal, hmm, that, that, that's probably pretty close to accurate. But your mileage may vary on how you view it. So this perception of the Andals that we mentioned from Chella's quote, the lowlanders can't be trusted. To this day, that perception remains. And that's perhaps what you'd say about your enemies no matter what. Like, when do you trust your enemies. It's not super common, not exactly a common sentiment, but it also could be an indicative of past filled with Andal attempts to trick the clans. Hey, come out of the passes and we'll give you some food. Slaughter you. Like just anything to get them out of their home turf so that they're easier to fight. And if any, if things like that had even happened a few times, it would set the stage for a huge long lasting lack of trust between the two. And of course, the Andals don't trust the these first men clans, they're, they're raiders and bandits from their perspective. So why would they think that they would uphold any agreement? Not that they're right, but you can see from their perspective why they wouldn't uh, necessarily look beyond what's in front of them. They're not the Andals who originally invaded. This is thousands of years later. They're not necessarily aware of why things are the way they are. Anyway, they are very dangerous, though. There's a lot of cases where the Clans of the Vale have done serious damage to people, places, things. Here's another, here's an example, a particularly stirring and uh, strong example of what they're capable of. Quotes. In time, there came another winter and another attack upon the Vale by the wild clans of the Mountains of the Moon. Taken unawares by a band of painted dogs, King Roland I Aaron was pulled from his horse and murdered, his skull smashed in by a stone maul as he tried to free his longsword from its scabbard. He had reigned for six and twenty years, just long enough to see the first stones laid for the castle he had decreed. Yeah, so you can tell from the quote there, Roland I was the one who started building the Erie, and I didn't see very much of that happen, clearly. It took 40 years or more I don't remember exactly. That's that's also how long Heron Hall took. So maybe I'm wrong. I think actually I might have actually taken longer. Anyway, these guys interrupted it. They slowed it down, and it's that's pretty important, right? That the site of the Erie is now something they couldn't attack. They would never be able to attack this spot now. It's just too been too much construction of 
defense and fortification has happened. But at the time, they may have seen that. They're like, uh-oh, we don't want that to go up. Boy, they're going to they're gonna oppress us even more if that thing is finished. Of course, they weren't able to stop it, but they did delay it significantly. They may have slowed it down by a generation or more, potentially. Nina says, what's ironic here is that King Roland explicitly began construction on the Erie because in the winter, he first contemplated a reconstruction of the gates of the moon. Thousands of wildlings descended from the mountains in search of food and shelter and their depredations brought home to the king how vulnerable his seat was at his present site. This was a huge fail because as we see very clearly in a, de- in a Feast for Crows, when winter sets on the Vale, the area is uninhabitable. They abandon it during winter. It's like symbolic how they just give up when winter comes, whereas the North it stays in place and just buckles down. And well, this is winter, we deal with it. And it's colder where they come from. In the Vale, it's a little farther south. But they just, they just give it up. They're just, yeah, we don't live here in the winter. We go elsewhere. And they go back to the same foot of the mountain that is apparently <laughs> vulnerable. So yeah, that's just bad planning on the Aaron's part there. No wonder John Aaron's such a great lord. Look what his predecessors did. <laughs> I, I'm glad you said bad planning because that's what I was thinking. It, they, it might be more inhabitable or habitable if they were prepared for winter coming <laughs> like they are in the north. And I guess maybe you could argue that's their preparation is to leave this massive castle they spent generations building. <laughs> like, what if all the effort and resources that were put into that instead have been put into allying with the clansmen yeah. to like providing some infrastructure for them and trade and... Uh, Inc- conscripting anyway. some of them, some of them are using them as soldiers, like doing what Tyrion did, like making them his soldiers. You know, be pragmatic about it, right? Instead of fighting them, fight with them. I don't know. Maybe there's various reasons maybe why this wasn't possible, but you're right. It doesn't seem like attempts were even made. There's nothing we see in any of this history that indicates attempts have been made. Maybe they would have failed. Maybe that, Maybe they knew they would fail, but I don't know. I wouldn't be so sure. Given what went into the Erie, think what a massive effort that was. Yeah. Think of how much they money was spent, how much yeah. wealth, and time. Generations. Generations. <laughs> like, if they had a generation-long plan, they, they could work out something. They didn't even plan, use marble from the Vale. Guys, like, I don't like the local marble. Let's get some yeah. Tarth marble. Have that shipped in. Like, how much marble was this? Like, an insane amount, right? So, yeah. If you can, if you can import enough marble for a castle, you could probably do a little outreach you know, <laughs> probably. <Yeah. laughs> so uh, maybe not, though. Maybe it just wouldn't have worked. Like when people were first coming up with the plans to make this class, this castle, I'm sure some people were like, there's no way we can do this. Yeah. Just like if I say you should make peace with the Klansmen, they would say there's no way we can do this. But somehow they did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they you're put right. put their minds to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So here's another quote. This is just a list of current clans. This is more recent. We're moving into more recent times. Not current but recent, and then we'll eventually get to current. We've jumped a long way from ancient times to more recent. And here's a quote. Here are the names of the most notable clans of the Mountains of the Moon, as reported by Archmaster Arnell in his Mountain and Vale. <laughs> Stone Crows, Milk Snakes, Sons of the Mist, Moon Brothers, Black Ears, Sons of the Tree, Burned Men, Howlers, Redsmiths, Painted dogs. I imagine there's more than that. That seems like a low number of clans. There's probably something he hasn't counted. But, and if not, that means the clans are bigger than I thought. But either one is fine. Like, neither of these is going to be some sort of plot hole. This is unclear. Like I said, Tyrion's group of 300 is Stone Crows, Moon Brothers, Black Ears, and Burn Men of 300 of them. Now, that wasn't all their warriors, but it was probably a substantial number. It was either Milk Snakes or Moon Brothers who attacked Catelyn's party when she crossed over to the, to, meet up with Lysa. Some of these other names are, they're 
evocative, but maybe don't tell us everything. You know, Moon Brothers sounds kind of old gods-ish with the moon stuff. So obviously, Sons of the Tree, as I said earlier, that one really sounds old gods-ish. Howlers, I don't really know what the deal with that is. Red Smiths, that's strange, actually. <laughs> I kind of guess the Howlers refers to the bear battle cry. They howl when they go into battle. Okay. That's just yeah. my guess. I don't know. Yeah, okay, I can see that. Maybe they howl at the moon. <laughs> they're the I was going to say, I wonder if there could be a connection to wolves. Well, yeah, it could be. I mean, if we're trying to relate this to stuff that would fit with having formerly been part of the old gods, you know, or they emanated from that cultural tradition. So things like crows, like the stone crows and dogs and wolves and mist and moons and things like that. Trees all fit that pretty well. Snakes seem a little out of place. That's the one that seems most... Yeah, milk snake's a little interesting, like a white snake. I mean, is that the David Coverdale version of white snake? Or is that, <laughs> yeah, here I go. There's only one guy in the milk snakes. Here he goes again <laughs> on his own. Or it, One very, it could be, if you really want to reach a little and make that an old God's reference, you think of the, the white roots. You could think of milk snake, white root. Okay, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm reaching with that one. But that, it came to mind. I thought I'd throw that out. The other thing is we got um, we got more references to snakes in the veil because we've got like House Linderly, their sigil, it has snakes, green mm. snakes all over it. And mm. then they, they live in snake wood. And this is in the veil. Snake wood. And that's wood. a forest. Snake wood is a forest uh, in the veil okay. of Aaron. So I assumed maybe that the, the milk snakes live near there or there are or used to be from there yeah anyway clearly there's snakes in the veil though although those are all green snakes but there are snakes there mm, okay yeah that's a good uh, snake wood probably named for the snakes <laughs> probably does actually have snakes in it yeah. mm. let's have another quote which it, it refers to the idea that there are more clans lesser clans exist as well often being formed after some feud splinters one clan but these usually last only a short time before they are swallowed up by rivals or wiped out by the Knights of the Vale. Most of these clan names have some meaning, however obscure those meanings might be to us. The Black Ears take the ears of men they defeat in battle as trophies we know. That is a little bit akin to the practice of scalping that was done by some Native American Cella says, it's braver to leave the man alive with a chance to cleanse his shame by winning back his ear. That's pretty gruesome. But yeah, it is, uh, you beat them, but you don't kill them to show that you're not afraid of their revenge. It's pretty hardcore, man. (laughs) It's pretty hardcore. (laughs) Uh, But you wonder, did some ancestor, did some, if if we're thinking of this clan structure where they descend from some common ancestor, was there some powerful warrior that started this practice? And he was like, I'm going to show how tough I am by... He had this idea and did it, or she had this idea and did it, and other people followed in, in their followed their lead, and it became a thing. And this clan was one of these offshoot splinters that lasted. It says most all usually only last a short time, but clearly some of them do last. She did take four ears at the Green Fork, so <laughs> I wonder if she left those men alive. <laughs> she also fought in the Kingswood, but we don't know how many ears she got there. Probably a few. Stone crows, don't know what that means, but crows does make me think of old God stuff, same as Moon Brothers, like I said. Painted dogs, we already talked about that. Now, here's a quote about Wait, the burn. First, I would like to say. Sure. Do you think there's any chance that uh, Red Smiths is a reference to the, the sports writer Red Smith? I've never heard of the sports writer okay. Red Smith, but All that right. 
sounds possible. Where's this guy from? He's the greatest sports writer. And, really? Uh, I don't not know. this current era, apparently. <laughs> he died in 1982. <laughs> yes. So he was okay. in George's time, though. Definitely George's time. Okay. Uh, he was just, I don't know. He was like a, a Packers. Well, that's guy. not George's team. No, but still, not, if he was but... that well known, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Anyways, I'm just idly curious. Isn't it Redfort? Isn't that a, a house in Avail? Yeah, yeah that mm-hmm. is. Wonder if the Red Smiths could be connected yeah, to that. Yeah, that's I mean, interesting. That's well, anyway, so could be, could be. So here's a quote about the burned men. Amongst the burned men, a youth must give some part of his body to the fire to prove his courage before he can be deemed a man. This practice might have originated in the years after the Dance of the Dragons. Some masters believe when an offshoot clan of the Painted Dogs were said to have worshipped a fire witch in the mountains, sending their boys to bring her gifts and risk the flames of the dragon she commanded to prove their manhood. Now that sounds like just some wild tale, but we know it's true. And of course, proving your manhood, that seems like a common enough refrain from these tribes, like showing your bravery, showing your courage, testing yourself. So let's briefly discuss the tale of nettles and sheep steel. Why nettles fled to live in isolation is a separate tale as is how she came to ride the dragon, Sheepstealer. We'll save that for another time. And we may even see it on TV, not in season one of House of the Dragon, but um, maybe later. So she did leave the world behind for those reasons that we'll discuss elsewhere and decided to pick the veil. She decided to become a hermit, I guess, or just to, to leave society, to go live away from everyone else. And... Apparently, some people that became the burned men, the the, uh, painted dogs, it says, were the first ones to find her. And they saw how strong she was, knew that this dragon did her bidding, and they respected that strength. She probably handled the situation pretty well, maybe a little bit like Tyrion, and and soon enough, they're following her. Not just following her, but naming their clan after her. And, And so she's perhaps the, this is perhaps an example of a matric clan. They don't, descend from her, but they absolutely are following her example or her existence and leadership defines everything that's come since. That's pretty neat because it's very atypical for a clan. Just, a, hey, a dragon showed up in our territory and this woman rules it and they call her a fire witch and, well, she certainly has a dragon, so you can see where that title comes from. Ooh. That's really uh, that's really neat, huh? Uh, I know, Sean. This is some of this is probably completely new to you. A lot of a lot of listeners have heard this tale of nettles and sheepslitter before, but how does this strike you? I've heard of the character nettles, yeah. and I, I my understanding is that she was a dragon rider that wasn't a, a Valerian, or wasn't, she may have been you know, Valerian. She just had dark skin, which means that well, at least one of her parents wasn't Valerian, but that doesn't mean the other one couldn't have been. So, I, actually, what I meant to say was Targaryen. Oh uh, yeah, sure. She could still be half. She could still which, be part. Which they're Valerian, but yeah, I, I, I got. I had the idea that she was post the Doom Dragon Rider, mm-hmm. not Targaryen, right? Which I guess there are still other uh, her, people that that could be. But yeah, her heritage is uncertain. But yeah, she's not like a full blood Targaryen, that's for sure. But she also is very important. Is how she tamed Sheep Stealer. She did it through trust, like the normal way you would get a wild animal to trust you. You bring it food every day. It gets used to you. So it's very different, which is why it's, well, Sheepster was already kind of a wild dragon. So does this prove that she, she tamed it with a regular relationship or does this, that she also have the dragon blood? Like it could be both, right? It's not clear. Anyway, that's not uh, super relevant to the discussion of the clans. It is really interesting, but we'll, we'll come back to that some other time. 
but is a, a really cool founding myth for this, not myth, it's pretty much accurate story here uh, for what happened. And you wonder if that maybe relates to current characters, maybe Daenerys, is that going to be how they see her? If that something like that comes to happen, it's certainly possible. Ah, uh, something to think about. But let's continue our discussion of the burned men with uh, some other detail. They're definitely not a typical clan. There's a few mentions of them being clan apart. Even amongst the clans, they stand out as different. And here's an example of that in play. Each clan had its own cook fire. Black Ears did not eat with Stone Crows. Stone Crows did not eat with Moon Brothers. And no one ate with Burned Men. My first thought is because the name like Burn Man, they would overcook their meat, like just burned meat. Like, yeah, who wants tough, well done meat? Sounds like they would. Yeah, no, no one wants to eat with the well done meat clan, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Now, this isolation, perhaps Nina suggests, perhaps their association with the Fire Witch increased their isolation from the rest of the clans. Like they may even she was trying to separate herself from civilization. It seems which kind of implies she went to a particularly isolated corner of the veil. And that would mean that the people she encountered would be people who were also pretty isolated, or at least rural, even amongst very rural people. So you, you wonder if how much of the isolation plays a role in this very unique cultural attitude. This, this clan's sort of makeup that explains part of why they're so different. Yeah, is this, I wonder, how, because this is Tyrion's perspective here. Yeah. How much of this is the other clans not wanting to eat with the Burnmen or the Burnmen not wanting other clans to eat with them? Mm, probably, maybe a little both. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, that's a great call. Like, like you think of it as no one wants to eat with them, but you're right, maybe they also don't want to eat with the others. They like just being amongst their own kind. Yeah, This. so you were right that this was after the Doom. This is basically around the Dance of the Dragons era. We'll, we'll give you that much more, Sean. Another situation impacted by the clans prior to the Dance of the Dragons, but overlapping that general period. This also maybe will get a mention in the show. Maybe not. It might be a little too off the beaten path. But Lady Jane Aaron, the so-called Maiden of the Vale, and also the traditional title Defender of the Vale and Warden of the East. She had all those titles. Fighting in part for a woman's right to inherit, she supported Rhaenyra, despite the fact that she hated Prince Daemon for reasons that may come up on the show and are outside of today's scope. But she came to power at age three. Her father and all her brothers were killed by stone crows around the year 97 AC. So she was three years old, like I said. She had a regent for a while. But yeah, so that shows you, even in relatively recent times, these, the clans, there's plenty of examples of why someone like John Aaron or them like takes them seriously. Yeah, they are capable of some nasty thing. They're, they maybe don't have great weaponry but ambush, timing, unknowing the terrain, things like that, the, do not discount that. And when you're, when you're defending your home territory, morale counts for a lot like that. It's all these things we've learned about war. And I just said that uh, the Stone Crows maybe don't have great weapons. The clans don't have great weapons. But of course, we know that changed, didn't we? Yes, the, the clans are well-armed now. They weren't well-armed at the time of this anecdote. But thanks to Tyrion, they're extremely well-armed. And the Stone Crows are probably the most powerful of the clans. That's my sort of loose guess. I'm not super confident in that, in that but there were multiple Stone, uh, Stone Crows characters that were front and center. Gunthor, son of Gurn, and Shaga, son of Dolph, most prominently of all. 
And there's those two are both still on the board, the Game of Thrones board. Both Shaga and Gunthor are still out there, very likely to play roles in the story going forward, which is going to be a big part of the second half of this episode, which will begin after our brief mid-roll and a few questions from y'all. As usual, my friends, I would like to remind you that you can get access to our bonus episodes one of three ways. You can sign up on Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofwesteros, or you can go to our website, historyofwesteros.com, and hit the donate button, which allows you to do a straight PayPal donation. Or if you have a Spotify account or Anchor account, you can just add it to your bill, your monthly bill with them. You can subscribe to us for the simple price of $5 a month and get access to all of our bonus content. Right now, I think there's eight bonus episodes that I've uploaded to Spotify. We have a lot more. I'm uploading like one or two a week. Uh, So eventually, they'll all be there. And of course, there'll be more new ones being made. We're working on the latest Dance of the Dragons episodes with Radio Westeros, both the part five episode and the conclusion to the Red Kraken episode, the Lady Johanna Westerling Defender of the West episode, which is going to be pretty cool. So all that's out there. You know what to do. John, you noticed a couple of comments on our YouTube channel from last week's episode. Why don't you tell us what you saw here? Yeah, I do want to point out that I try to always go back and watch the episodes to see, because while we're watching this, there's no way I can keep up with the chat. So I try to go back and see the chat and uh, read the comments and everything. And I I appreciate it. And please, anyone who wants to interact or engage with me, I don't know, send me a message. Follow me on Twitter, Dancy Sean on Twitter. Anyway, Kirakun, I hope I said that right, made a comment. We were talking about there was, uh, I don't know, a motif of people having some sort of enlightenment after being put into darkness. Mm-hmm. We were talking about the maze makers going through the mazes blind. Yeah. Well, they pointed out Arya first warred with the cat after having been blind. That she mm. so had her third a, eye open when a, she was in the darkness too, just like her brother. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, that's very, that, man, that was, that's really strong. That's like, we, we already had several examples of that. Here's another really strong one from a major POV character. That's good catch her coon. There was another one that I, I just found humorous. We were talking about the, the, just the nature of labyrinths and mazes and the path through how it can lead to enlightenment or the, maybe the differences in definition of how many ways through or whatever. And Karen Targaryen pointed out, all paths lead to the gift shop. <laughs> That's for sure. If you're Which I'd even mention. A, yeah, yes. I'd even mention it. Sometimes that's that museums have a labyrinth-like structure just to wind back and forth to have more wall surface area to put things on. But you always exit through the gift shop. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. true. That's very true. Well point, Karen Targaryen. Well point. Ashton Johnson says the veil has been pretty much unscathed. You think we'll see the veil hit hard by the others or Danny? And also, what do you think became of Sheep Stealer? Good timed question there, given we just discussed Sheep Stealer. I, I would assume Sheep Stealer just passed of, of age. It's been long enough, uh, given the dance era was 170 years before the start of the books. Sheep Stealer was kind of young even then, but that's 200 ish years for this dragon. And that's pretty long, even for a dragon. I mean, Valerian didn't quite make it that long, but Valerian had suffered some serious injuries. And it's always possible there's another way, like Sheep Stealer was killed, but re- with lack of evidence, dragons do die of old age eventually. And then Sheep Stealer almost certainly outlasted Nettles as well. I was going to ask a, a couple questions. One, maybe it's too spoilery to tell me, do we know how Nettles dies? I'm assuming if 
she died on her dragon, then we would know more about yeah, that. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, two, do we have any other evidence of dragons just dying of old age? Do we have any examples of that or estimations of what the age might be? Yes, but we don't have great estimations of their age. For example, we know that when the Targaryens came to Dragonstone, they brought five dragons with them, Valerian being one of them, but not Vagar Meraxes. Vagar Meraxes were the first hashed on Dragonstone. So those other four, and we know for sure that because of a quote it, when Magor killed, uh, Magor fought Prince Aegon with dragon on dragon battle. It was said that was the first time dragons fought since Valyria. So that means the four dragons that died that were brought with Valyrian, they couldn't have fought each other in battle because we're told that that hadn't happened since Valyria. So those four must have died of old age. Maybe not all four. Maybe one of them, maybe one or two of them died in some war against someone on the mainland or something like that, even though we haven't heard of such things. It's, it's possible they died in some engagement. But all four of them, I'm guessing at least two of those died of old age. But we don't know how old they were when they came over. Yeah, yeah. But, but we know that Balerion was getting slower even, with, even before the great injury with the Erea incident where they flew back to Valyria and came back with this huge wound. She was, Balerion was already getting slow. Then, which is, implies aging. And, and, and they were like 181 yeah, I mean, is, when they died, I think. Yeah, what is dying of old age? Well, sometimes it is just you get an injury that you could have sustained when you were young and your you're old now. And Valerian might have been able to sustain that younger. Yeah, that's true. How much of a factor are there examples of dragons outliving their dragon rider? And on some level, the dragon rider might be helping maintain them, protect them, yeah. getting them food, whatever. But once their dragon rider dies, they don't have the connection. Do they... Well, sheep stealer might be sheep stealer might be different because we're, we can be almost positive she they, there wasn't another rider, and that would mean sheep stealer only ever had one rider their whole life. But say Balerion or Vagar yeah, had lots clear, of riders. Was okay, sheep stealer okay. was a, a wild dragon that was tamed by nettles, was not like hatched and raised up from 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 a hatchling after like, lots of like other failed dragons. To tame yeah, her. like um, yeah. So yeah. this is the, of all the of, of the various dragons, this one would be one of the more self-sustaining, self you know maintaining. Yeah. yeah so that's that's interesting. so other question. There's another part of this question here. The veil has been pretty much unscathed. Do you think we'll see the veil hit hard by the others or Danny? I don't think either. I think Danny is more likely to just not have to deal with the veil directly. Either she'll deal with their with the veil forces outside of the veil, or she won't have to fight them at all. I do think they'll follow Sansa to to the north. And they'll deal with the others up there. And Danny will probably be there as well. So I don't think Danny will attack the Vale, and I don't think the others will attack the Vale. But I do think the others, the Vale will be hit hard by winter and Littlefinger's manipulation of the grain prices and all that. So they're still going to have trouble, but I don't think it's going to be from dragons or, or the others. I think it'll be just more like regular humans. So, yeah. The Targaryens originally conquered the Vale by flying a dragon up to the Eyrie. Yeah. Right? Once, and then, then they did it again. That's happened twice. Yeah. <laughs> but, I don't know. Is it... Well, the Eyrie's abandoned it, uh, now, so Danny flies there because she'll find no one home. So I don't even... I, I don't think the Vale, the, yeah. the Eyrie will probably remain that way until the very end of the books because winter is probably not going to... Winter's coming. Yeah, winter's yeah. probably not going to go anyway anytime soon, so... But you're right, that would be, that's it's an interesting, they've avoided that outcome themselves accidentally. Yeah, better lucky than good. Better, <laughs> we, <laughs> we avoided that problem. Because the, uh, those, those examples of veil lore of someone flying a dragon up there involve, at least one of them involves a young child being the lord of the veil at the time, which is 
also the case right now, <laughs> but yeah. that can't go the exact same way, given the Eerie is probably, we probably won't see the Eerie again at all, the entire rest of the books. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe right at the end, just a little bit of closing stuff, maybe. Then. I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if we never saw it again. Fox and Brambles shout out. I just yeah. wanted to say that that question was from Fox and Brambles. Oh. Um, that's, that's who Ashton is. Um, and Fox and Brambles has right. recently updated their Etsy store with a bunch of more um, of their awesome sigil stickers. And I put a link in the chat. And they also have some great shirts on their Redbubble. But today is a shout out for the stickers. Right on. Question from Nikita Bennett. What I'm wondering about, among other things, are their numbers and how many of them are fighters? They seem to pose a threat to the veil with all that Lannister steel. Yeah. So that's something we're going to get a little deeper in, in the second half. But for a quick answer, my rough guess is about 3,000 because that's how many suits of armor and spears and helmets Tyrion requests from his father's armorers to arm his clansmen. So if they have more than that, well, they won't be armed as well. If they have less than that, well, then they have a few extras. But that's my best guess because I don't really know how else I would guess. I don't know, we don't have numbers on anything else, really. I would guess their numbers would have to be bigger than that because they're not going to arm every man, woman, and child, right? Oh, yeah. No, I meant that, that many fighters. Yeah, that would be a... Fighters, right. Okay, yes. Yeah, 3,000 fighters, but you're right. They would have... Fighting men is probably... It's a larger percentage of it would be than in most societies, but it still wouldn't be more than, certainly isn't even, not even close. It's probably more like 30% at most, maybe, maybe even, maybe a little higher, but yeah, 35% maybe. I don't know. Hard to guess. Liet Rubenfeld, why is the moon connected to the old gods? Okay, well, that's a, that's a good question. You can just maybe more obvious why crows and trees are connected, even mist perhaps. But moons, well, the moon is a big part of that one brand chapter where time is shown by the passage of what the moon's shape is. It's, and he's connected to it. It comes up like an eye. It's portrayed as an eye watching him and or direwolves at many points. It's pretty subtle. But maybe it's more accurate to say it's connected to Bloodraven than it is to the old gods. But I think that's the same thing because he is representing the old gods. He's a green seer. And I don't think we would make that application to him before he joined the tree. I don't, I don't associate the moon with him pre-joining the network because it's it's his presence from the tree that creates this moon symbolism and all that. So maybe it's not as strong as crows and trees, but I think, it, I think it's there. Now, a lot of, a lot of can, religions use the moon as a symbol. It, it may be a little bit of an assumption to make, but I think it's a reasonable one. The moon is definitely not part of the seven. It's not anywhere well, in that's there. True. Yeah, that's uh, true. Mythos. We, we do hear about like the Lord of Light. Even in other religions, we, maybe the sun. And when you get into older religions, it's more likely for parts of nature to be mm-hmm. part of what you're worshiping, yeah. lightning or whatever, whereas the seven are worshiping parts of civilization, the yeah. smith and so on. So. That's a good point, Sean. Yeah, well point. And I, yeah, you like, wonder, like, what is a drowned god? What do they think of the moon or the sun? I mean, a lot of them, don't. it's not like an oversight. It's just a lot of religions don't care about that or they actively like, no, don't worship the sun. Shut up about the sun. <laughs> yeah, I think like worshippers of the drowned god would care very much about the moon and sun and, and stars because of seafaring. That's true. Yeah, feel yeah. Like they may not be, be fully aware of the effect it has, but yeah, they would but certainly like it's better be to like, sail oh, during the day. Better be, able to see, better be able to see at night with the moon, better sailing, all that, or the, the tides. Or, yeah, right, and how the curious. moon would like, the moon and sun would both see, appear to sink into the sea at the end of the yeah. day or rise from the uh, sea. Yeah I, yeah, I would be surprised if there wasn't that. some a lot of mythology in, in um, the drowned god religion about the moon and sun. And that might be something we should perhaps 
find out in the in the world as a guest to bring on a guest who knows things nice sun moon symbolism would be fun to discuss in <laughs> in a song of ice and fire within a song of ice and fire filter so here's some more clanicdotes let's let's dive into a few of those to set up the rest of the episode in fire and blood the the host of robert rowan and bloody ben blackwood are leading men through the veil to assist in a veil civil war and as they're leading their men Constantly they're attacked, especially at night. Night attacks, just many men killed without ever being able to effectively fight back. This shows us one of the huge advantages the clans have. It's basically, they can attack you and you can't fight back. They can roll rocks at you, create an avalanche. What can you do against that? You can't see it coming. You can't stop it. You, you just suffer and hope they can't do that again. But it's not like you can return fire. Oh, they're, they're avalanching us. Shoot at them. You can't do anything. <laughs> the rocks are rolling at you. All you can do is try to get out of the way. So it's they can attack. You can maybe defend, but it's really hard to attack back at them. They, they, know, they, they know the land so well. They know how to hide. They know where you're going to go. They know where you're going to be. If they can see, okay, they're following this track. That means they're going to be here. We can ambush them there. They... It's really bad. It's, it was so bad, Robert Rowan himself was killed by one of these boulder drops. And when the men reached their destination, they couldn't fight. They were all left there to recover. They, they marched all the way there to help into a war that they couldn't fight in because the, the clans just messed them up so badly that they weren't in fighting shape by the time they got there. And it wasn't just the clans, it was the, the cold and the food, lack of food. So it was, they were suffering so they suffered in one day on this or several day march what the Klansmen deal with every day, except for them being attacked <laughs> by boulder drops and things like that. But the exposure and the cold and all that, this is their normal day-to-day living situation. Just goes to show how much tougher they are and how these Logistics would be more difficult for an army in the mountains too, oh, right? Yeah. Like having extra supplies and food and water carried would be hard up through mountains and such. We've many times referred to Hannibal, the great general of Carthage, and he led his army through the Alps, which really surprised the hell out of the Romans. But it came at a really high cost. He lost like almost all of his elephants. And we hear stories of similar things happening. Like he was leading his men through and the tribes of the Alps would drop boulders on them and demand payment to pass by. and build like obstructions that they couldn't get past. Like they would follow this path and all of a sudden they'd, they'd get to a like, big wall that was built by some clansmen or something. And they're like, well, you can't get around that. And, well, we'll take this down if you pay us. And they would want food usually. <laughs> and then when it, Hannibal's army emerged from the Alps, if the Romans had known, they could have descended on him and annihilated him. His, his army was in no shape for, for fighting. But like these guys weren't. So I wonder if George is even thinking of that. Might've been because it's a famous example from history. And, and George knows his his Roman Carthage history pretty well. So, um, seems to fit. Here's another clanicdote from the time of the books. The Stone Crows rode together, and Chella and Ulf stayed close as well, as the Moon Brothers and Black Ears had strong bonds between them. Timmet, son of Timmet, rode alone. Every clan in the Mountains of the Moon feared the Burnmen, who mortified their flesh with fire to prove their courage and... The other said, roasted babies at their feasts. <laughs> okay. And even the other burn men feared Timmet, who had put out his own left eye with a white hot knife when he reached the age of manhood. Tyrion gathered that it was more customary for a boy to burn off a nipple, a finger, or if he was truly brave or mad, an ear. 
Timmet's fellow burned men were so awed by his choice of an eye that they promptly named him a red hand, which seemed to be some sort of a war chief. Yeah, we can probably say that babies thing is made up, just the thing that they say. Yeah, we those burn hand, they made babies. Like, I doubt that. Babies are probably too precious. <laughs> like, they probably don't have a lot of children. You know, we need more clansmen. We don't want to eat this kid. We need him to grow up into an adult <laughs> and, and help us <laughs> and do stuff. You can imagine that's the type of thing that happened one time in the past. Yeah. And now they, well, you eat one yeah. baby and everyone thinks, you're <laughs> come on, I'm really, I'm, I'm capable of so much more than baby eating. I'm just defined <laughs> by this one baby. <laughs> <laughs> a Song of Ice and Fire has a number of characters who lost or lose an eye, Nina writes, from Bloodraven to Beric Dondarrion to Aemon Targaryen. But Timmet, in one way, might have the strongest Odin overtones with his loss, while Aemon, Beric, and Bloodraven involuntarily lost theirs. Timmet voluntarily gave up his, like Odin did. Timmet's reward was temporal power rather than supernatural knowledge, but his actions did show that, like Odin, he considered it worth it. He considered the sacrifice worth the reward. He didn't didn't seem to have any regrets. And of course, this is also a bit of a pun intended, short-sighted decision on part of the burned man by partially blinding himself. He is less of a warrior. I mean, he can't see his foes as well. Yet, even a, maybe an ironborn reverse glory thing where they're just, they look at the bravery and not at the properties of this decision and not how it'll affect them in the future. The bravery just outweighs everything. I'm thinking of a red kraken who led the, the ironborn to ruin, but they still esteem him as a hero because they're, I don't know, they're bad at cause and effect thinking maybe, but this is even more straightforward. (laughs) I think it is worth noting that sometimes the bravery alone can make up for other connected flaws, right? right? We we talked one time about like someone wearing a certain suit of armor that isn't very practical, but if it inspires, if 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 one person's individual fighting ability is cut in half, but it inspires 10 people to fight 10% harder, that's 100% increase Mm, overall. And you might inspire 100 people to fight 20% 20% harder. So yeah, and I, I think it's I think it's worth it. That's know? a great point because there's um, another good example of that. It's something that people criticize a lot on TV, but it's actually not that unrealistic, which is the leaders not wearing helmets in battle. It probably happens a little too often on TV, but it did happen a lot in the real world where you would the king would want to people to be able to see him so they wouldn't wear a helmet. Like, there's a famous king of Sweden who did this. It wasn't even that long. It was like 300 years ago. He, he was like, God will protect me. That's another thing. They just think God is their helmet or whatever. He died in battle. You know, God was not his helmet. Yeah. <laughs> or God was like, uh, also, your helmet's not strong enough, bro. <laughs> also, helmets are heavy and annoying and hot. Yeah, like, yeah. in modern times, soldiers don't want to wear the helmet. Like, you want to because you don't want to get shot in the head. But, like, any chance to take the helmet off. Even when they're, even these it, modern you know I mean? lighter helmets, they're made of, like, a relatively soft material. They're not made of steel or whatever. They're still right, like, hot. Kevlar helmets, can, they can they deflect bullets and don't weigh as much as steel. You don't want to wear it. It's, <laughs> it's annoying and heavy and uh, and hot yeah. and on and on. So I can easily imagine like the common soldier being required to. Yeah. If you don't, you'll get whipped or punished or whatever. But the, the leaders, they're going to take their helmets off whenever they can, yeah. especially when they're not worried about sniper bullets. Yeah. Right? When it's some guy with a sword and he doesn't have a battlefield, yeah. you easily... Not a lot of not sniping going on in Westeros unless you're a blood raven. Yeah, yeah killing and Damon Blackfire. And of course, folks, remember, Sean knows that helmet thing from experience. This is not, uh, that's not just an idle helmet suck thing. This man has worn helmets. <laughs> uh, it's probably, nowadays, they have like little attachments to put 
night vision goggles and stuff oh, on. Like yeah. they just keep hooking more stuff onto solder and <laughs> the equipment. It's heavier and heavier yeah. and more and more cumbersome. Yeah. Every new fancy thing they invent is something else they have to carry. Yeah. yeah. Batteries for it. Yeah. And, yeah. Nina also writes, it's funny in an ironic sense that Timot stabs himself in the eye to win power among the Burn Men when the Burn Men as a tribe started by worshiping Nettles, whose companion, Damon, stabbed Eamon through the eye. (laughs) The Vale Mountain Clans are also the subject of one of Nina's favorite jokes. He put his heels to his horse and trotted off, giving them no choice but to follow or be left behind. Either was fine with him so long as they did not sit down to talk for a day and a night. That was the trouble with the clans. They had an absurd notion that every man's voice should be heard in council, so they argued about everything, endlessly. Even their women were allowed to speak. Small wonder that it had been hundreds of years since they last threatened the veil with anything beyond an occasional raid. Tyrion meant to change that. Even their women were like, yeah, it doesn't reflect well on you, Tyrion. But it is interesting. Yeah. It is like a proto version of democracy um, and apparently fairly inclusive if, if even the women are allowed to speak. Going back to my point, the Eandles assumption that they're no better than the wildlings. They're better than you in some ways. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, they've got more of a sense of equality. And Tyrion's assumption that that's the reason that they've never been a threat to the Vale. Not that they've been oppressed, <laughs> not that they've been stripped of resources. It's because their women can't speak yeah. that's, or because their women are allowed to speak. That's what's holding them back. Yeah. <laughs> now, he's right that they, about the point that small wonder that it had been hundreds of years since they last threatened the veil with anything being on an occasional raid. That's the only thing he's probably right about. He's wrong, perhaps, about the why that they're in that state. That's what I think you're getting at, Sean. And he does seem equipped to change that. So he's probably right about that as well. But more on that later. This, here's another take from Nina. This is obviously George as a modern American cheerfully poking fun at his own setting. <laughs> With very few exceptions, the main point of view is, which is to say, the major protagonists of the series are all aristocrats whose families have been part of the ruling class in Westeros or Valyria for thousands of years. Not just ruling class, but upper ruling class, elites, right? Some are better than others in how they approach their responsibilities to their subjects. Ned Stark's a great example. But all of them believe inherently that they are literally born to rule. Ned Stark is still an example. Catelyn still an example, right? They believe in their privilege. They, they're, they're blind to how much privilege they have. Even if they stop to think about it, they still, from an experience point of view, just don't know how to place it. Like Catelyn, remember when Catelyn goes incognito to the end of the crossroads and the innkeeper isn't nice to her and doesn't give her sweets? She's like, oh, wow, gosh, how strange. No, it's because... She doesn't know you're the daughter of a high lord. Like, if she knew who you were, you would get the same treatment. That's why you got the treatment in the first one. She's just blind to why she was like, oh, she's just nice to every little girl. No, she's nice to the daughter mm-hmm. of River Run. <laughs> Catelyn's blind to that, right? And George is poking fun there. It's a similar kind of example where while there are and have been certain elected positions in Westeros, these elections are often held by and among the elites in their respective areas or organizations to elect an individual to royal or de facto royal status. Like the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch is pretty much always a lord. The High Septon is usually highborn. The High Kings on the Iron Isles, even them are from the nobility. To an aristocrat like Tyrion, who is not just born to power, but born to a very classist man who's influenced heavily by Tywin. Even Tyrion, even when Tyrion rejects a lot of what Tywin taught him, he doesn't realize he's, he's so much like his father, like uh, Jenna says. 
it would seem nothing sort of nonsensical to let someone he would consider lower than a peasant dictate the policy of local government. That Tyrion likewise sneers at the gender equality in these councils reflects the fundamentally sexist nature of Westerosi politics. It's not completely impossible for women to rule in Westeros, but this is a land where, by and large, power is expected to come from men, through men, to men, with women as obedient servants. So Tyrion is reflecting this attitude by suggesting that. And and compare Gildane and Fire and Blood, Nina says, who complains about the Republican High Council of the Triarchy, where even issues as timely as War, Peace, Alliance were subject to endless debate by its 33 members because it lacked a true king. Yeah, so they're just really honing in on the, the weak points of democracy without showing the plus sides, the equality that we point to or the the fact that, hey, is it bad that they don't quickly rush off to war? I mean, if it's defense, yeah. then yeah, you need to get that going quickly. But if it's an aggre- a war of oppression, aggression, yeah, I don't think it, like we sitting here on the sidelines aren't going to complain that they're slow to get moving on something like that. So yeah, well said. Uh, a, couple things I wanna, a couple things I want to point out is it, it's, it's worth noting that choosing uh, some highborn lord to be lord commander it may be for, uh, I don't know, classist reasons in the first place, but the highborn person is more likely to know how to read and have been instructed yeah. with the sword. There are no, some no, no, logistical so, reasons for it, yeah. Yeah. Um, Taught how to rule. Like, John but, was had more le- leadership experience just, yeah, yeah. because he was around Ned Stark. And, it know, was, yeah. like, Mormont didn't just choose him because he was right. of noble blood or whatever. He was, he had proven himself in some uh, practical ways. But a lot of the other people that watch might have also proved themselves in practical ways if they had been afforded the opportunities that John was. But given that they were, and it makes sense he gets elected. So uh, anyway, uh, just a, I don't know, a point, a counterpoint I wanted to make. I don't think it takes away from the main point. Yeah. But I, I still can't get over the thing with Tyrion. I just thought of another angle here. He said, it's been, no wonder, it's been hundreds of years since the, the Klansmen have threatened the veil with anything beyond occasion. How long has it been since the veil threatened the Klansmen with anything Ooh, beyond occasion? Right? Good point. They, yeah. All their aristocracy good and male point. leadership, and they still haven't taken out the Klansmen. I mean, I'm happy for that, but I'm just saying it yeah. goes both ways. And they're supposedly so much weaker, yet yet they linger, yet they remain. Yep. So, mm-hmm, yep. great point. Yeah, it's just like a lot of these things, Tyrion just hasn't looked at it from the other perspective. He just falls back on what he already knows. And Tyrion is relatively enlightened compared to most characters and he leaders is, yeah. and aristocrats in his world. And even see, he has these blind spots. Yeah, even despite his like obvious classist, sexist issues, a lot of which he gets from his father, just from his the, the nobility of Westeros. Yeah, even rising above that somewhat, he still doesn't come close to rising it over it all the way. Yeah. Let's move forward. Current times and outlook. So the, the two topics combined here which is the idea of what's happening right now and set up for the rest of the series. This is perhaps the, the richest part of the episode, depending on your, what stuff you like the most. Given the richness of A Song of Ice and Fire, it's easy to have slipped on how important some of these plot lines are or could be. As I said at the beginning, part of the reason for that is that we've had a lot of quotes this episode, have several more, but almost all of them are from the first three books and The World of Ice and Fire. So it's easy to have maybe forgotten. Um, considering so many other things have happened, right? Feast for Crows and Dance of Dragons, a lot happens and some plenty of real lifetime has passed if you haven't done a reread. So here's another quote from Arya. Arya 12, A Storm of Swords, as the clans start to maybe appear in other plot lines a bit. There's frost above us and snow in the high passes, the village elder said. If you don't freeze or starve, the Shattercast will get you or the cave bears. There's the clans as well. 
The Burn men are fearless since Timmet One Eye came back from the war. And half a year ago, Gunthor, son of Gurn, led the Stormcrows down in a village not eight miles from here. They took every woman and every scrap of grain and killed half of the men. They have steel now, good swords, and male hauberks. They watch the high road, the stone crows, the milk snakes, the sons of the mist, all of them. You said Stormcrows by actually, which is funny. It's like, oh yeah, that is a similar name. Stone Crows, Storm Crows. <laughs> yeah, but now, anyway, definitely feels like setup, right? Like those guys, the Gunthor of Son of Gurn has a, they're all well armed. And he says all of them. He's very clear to say all these tribes are very well armed now. And well... So about 3,000 of them are armed. We have to wonder what's going to become of this army. They've, it, as it says there, they've attacked nearby villages. It's that one there that Sandor helps them build a wooden palisade to help keep them out. They're not sure it'll be enough. Sandor's like, hey, I can also stay here and help you fight them. And he, they're like, nah, we know who you are. You might want, you can't, you can't stay here. Which, plug for our Buildings of Brandon bonus episode. There's a long passage about that this part in that episode because it's very much a metaphor for the giants building the wall and then not being allowed to live under its protection. Sandor being the giant in this case, he builds the wall to keep out the wildlings or the invaders and then is not allowed to share in its protection and is told to get the hell out. And that's what the giants did for the wall. They helped apparently help Brandon the Builder build the wall and then where did they go after that? They're no longer south of the wall. It sounds like they were kicked out after being perhaps enslaved in order to help. So anyway, a digression, a fun one, but a digression. So they're in two basic groups. Like Tyrion says, they are capable of something bigger. Tyrion meant to change that. He means to organize them into a fighting force and do what? Step one, organize them. Step two, step three, profit. So we don't know what step two is, but we know that if they're going to ally with anyone, it's probably Tyrion. And it could be the Storm Crows fighting alongside the Stone Crows. <laughs> Because <laughs> the Storm Crows fight for Danny, and Tyrion is probably going to fight with Danny as well. So that would be awesome, actually. They could just charge into battle alongside each other, Storm Crows and Stone Crows. Like, which is which? But they are. Become Storm and Crows. Yeah, Storm. <laughs> the Stone Storm Crows. They're in two basic groups the Stone Crows, that is. They're the ones that return to the Vale. And there's ones in the Kingswood. Let's talk about the first group the Vale ones first, and then the Kingswood first after that. Let's consider the state Tyrion found the clansmen the very first time. This is a quote from right after they're raided the first time with Catelyn and Sir Roderick and all that, Bronn. Here we go, quote. As he limped back to the others, he glanced again at the slain. The dead clansmen were thin, ragged men, their horses scrawny and undersized with every rib showing. A big part of the description of the aftermath of his battle is Tyrion noticing how a lot of these guys seemed a lot bigger when they were fighting. There was this one huge guy that he thought had a big two-handed greatsword and a big cloak. And when he gets close to his body, he's he's a lot smaller than I thought. And that comes up a couple times. You have this every rib showing. So this is a Game of Thrones, early Game of Thrones, well before winter in, in book timeline. And in A Feast for Crows, when the area is shut down, in Sansa Lane's chapters, we do see the snow is getting pretty nasty. In other words, they were desperate then. They're even more desperate now, but they're way better armed. <laughs> Yikes, right? That's going to be a problem. Not only that, they're mad. They're mad. After the Battle of the Green Fork, Tyrion's clansmen reunite, like a bunch of them died, but he's, he, about half of them live and he brings them to King's Landing. They're part of his personal guard. They do a lot of stuff. But then he goes and fights in the Battle of the Blackwater, and he's severely injured. And while he's laid up, 
recovering. He can't even leave his room. He's also afraid they're going to kill him because he thinks that Cersei or someone tried to have him killed, given that big wound on his face. While he's laid up, paranoid, recovering, the people of King's Landing just jeer and yell at Timot and Chella and all the burn men and Black Ears and presumably the Moon Brothers because their leader, Ulf, was killed at the Green Fork. So we don't know who took over leadership of them. They also, they're all just told to go home. Even though they were fought for King's Landing, they helped the, the, the King's Landing over, beat Stannis. So they, weren't, they didn't lose their city to him. So they were defenders. And this is how they're treated. It's very, ingra- it's very ingratious, kind of like Sandor building the wall for these guys. Kicked out. So they're also mad. They have a good reason. Look, this is what Shella said, right? Like, you can't trust these lowlanders. And indeed, she's proven right. They stand up for them. They, they're warriors. They fight for the people of King's Landing. And then what do they get in return? Go home, clansmen. You're not welcome here. That's going to make you mad. You know, <laughs> I was going to say that there's, I, I, I bet if I knew more about Irish history, that there might be some parallels to make with these clans. But over and over again, I feel like we're making parallels to Native American tribes. Yeah, mm-hmm. like I agree. The, the, the not being able to trust the Europeans that came over, oftentimes allying with the British to fight the French for something in return that in the end they don't get. Mm-hmm. Like concert, the treaties with lands being you know encroached upon. God, the, we don't have to. We don't have to obey uh, a treaty with savages, something like that, which is a similar, yeah. probably similar attitude the Andals have towards the clans. Like, oh no, word, they won't keep their word. Why should we? You know, that kind of thing. Like it's just. Complete lack of a, a lot trust. of times too, it would be something that originally might have been genuine that some some leader really intended to fulfill some obligation to a native tribe yeah. in return for some protection or alliance or, or agreement about land or whatever, but go a couple generations later and it's not respected mm-hmm. anymore. I think the Welsh tribes are also I think you mentioned England. I think the Scotland, of course, is we've already mentioned Scotland. They have clans are more explicit part of their uh, history and current times, really. But Wales is where the Irie, the real world Irie is. It's not a castle so much as it is a, a, like a big rock face. And uh, Snowdonia, I believe, is, is one of its names. And yeah, it's the same thing. Well, there's a very wooded, dense area that was really hard for the kings of England to subjugate. And eventually they did. It was the guy from the guy, Edward Longshanks, the one from Braveheart did it. <laughs> he also subjugated Scotland, as we saw very brutally. So yeah, he did both of those. Like that guy was... Nasty. Yeah, so I, I would agree with you there. There's probably a lot of real-world stuff that had this episode not already had so much, I probably would have delved deeper in some of that stuff. But there's just so much in this one already. We didn't, didn't really have room for that. Maybe some other time we can come back and dedicate ourselves to that specifically. So if that's something that would interest you folks, speak up. But let's continue on. So adding all that up, they're mad about how they were treated. They weren't exactly happy with the lowlanders in the first place. Now they're better armed and facing a huge, nasty winter. So that's just got to come to a head. Even if maybe some of that will happen before Tyrion brings them into the fold, maybe that's some way that they become part of things rather than just being this raiding element from behind the scenes. Who knows? But they're definitely going to be a big deal, I think. Now, Tyrion doesn't screw them over, right? He treats them fairly well. He, he you know, things, talks down to them and things like that, but he pays them for their service. They're well-treated in terms of like their labor and their efforts. But his father <laughs> certainly mistreats them, even while pretending to treat them well. Let's uh, consider that. But while we look at their pride, they're very proud people. And this pride is also the key to manipulating them. First of all, here's an example of their pride that is funny. In Tyrion 7, A Game of Thrones. Wherever the burn men go, Stone Crows have been there first. 
Khan declared hotly. We ride as well. They've been there first? <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> Wherever the stone crows go, we've been there first. So yeah, you can see their like competitiveness because the burn men will go, we'll fight. So the like, oh, you're fighting? Well, then I was going to say that first, but you just <laughs> interrupted me. I was going to, I was totally, yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty funny. And, and you can see like in a medieval, feudal, like ancient setting, you see loyalty and pride and honor are very intertwined. Like, being proud of your dedication is a kind of a common refrain. Now, here's a line from Tyrion 1, A Clash of Kings. So, we've, we've right at the beginning of the second book. The clansmen Tyrion had brought down from their fastnesses in the Mountains of the Moon were loyal in their own fierce way, but they were proud and quarrelsome as well, prone to answer insults, real or imagined, with steel. Or with wooden clubs or stone axes, <laughs> apparently, yeah. <laughs> but he does trust them. I mean, he, he uses them for important tasks. He has Shella guard Shay, which to him, that's, that's a really important job. Like he, obviously, his relationship with Shay is I wonder how much of that but. is that that's the female guard he has. If he, like, it's part of it, yeah. Like, like I, I less so the Klansman part, but more so the, this is a female. He also tried to, uh, he offered black ears to guard Sansa. And Sansa said, I don't want them. <laughs> they scared her. <laughs> now, that was an important job, guarding Shay. But also an important job was having Shaga shave Pycelle. That was a very important job. But he does it kind of <laughs> sloppily, prompting another hilarious line, Dolph fathered warriors, not barbers. <laughs> but it's a joke that shows George's efficiency in world building, the frequent mention of his father there, which we brought up at the beginning as he's honoring his dad. Like he says his dad's name a lot of times and it's, it's, he takes George, you know, it's efficient. He uses this line to fit all that in there. Not to mention Shag himself is portrayed as a man rather in need of a haircut himself, perhaps the most in need of it. At one point, Tyrion says, He's the one that looks like Casterly Rock with hair. <laughs> Shaga also like snaps a sword in half on his, on his leg. He just like, <laughs> if another man bears steel against me, I'm going to shove it up his, you know, instead of just breaking his sword, I'm going to break him or something like that. He says that you're like, and they're like, yeah, I believe you. I. <laughs> Shaga also fights with an axe in each hand and all this other stuff. Yeah, Shaga's fun. Uh, and if, for example, this exchange between Tyrion and Bronn. Perhaps you should eat the goose and marry the maid. Or better still, send Shaga. Shaga's more like to eat the maid and marry the goose. <laughs> <laughs> There's a funny moment in that passage, too, in, in that exchange also there, because this comes up because Tyrion's wondering where Timot is. And he's told he felt an urge to explore, which causes Tyrion to quip, I hope he doesn't kill anyone important. He does kill someone. A man tries to cheat him at dice for thinking he only has one eye. It's going to be easier to cheat. That is not someone important. So he didn't kill someone important. <laughs> and Bronn also found it funny how Timmet killed him, which was like, he grabbed him. He stabbed him through the wrist <laughs> to hold his hand on the table and then grabbed his throat. And said, Bronn's like, he has this trick where he stiffens his fingers. And Tyrion's like, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> So it's another example of the interrupting the lore, which uh, this time it's good because there wasn't anything cool coming there. <laughs> Just gore and grossness. So thanks for that one, George. Prior to that, though, here's Tywin also taking advantage of them by playing on their pride. Here's the quote. 
Lord Tywin rose, dignified and correct. Even in the West, we know the prowess of the warrior clans of the Mountains of the Moon. What brings you down from your strongholds, my lords? So yeah, he's playing them. He's just like, my lords. Come on, Tywin doesn't think of them that way. <laughs> oh, man, he is totally blowing smoke here. He's just, just yeah. So Tywin's like, hmm. Good chance to win a few more fighters to my side. That's, these, these guys can die instead of my troops. Because what does he do? He puts Tyrion's men, including these guys, on the weak side. Remember, this is his plan was for this side of the battle to collapse so that Rob rushes it and then he can pin them against the, the river. It was a trap, right? And Tyrion confronts Tywin. He's that was your plan, right? And he's yeah, that was my plan. <laughs> he didn't tell me. He's like, I don't trust my battle plans to men who consort with sellswords and savages. And Tyrion responds, pity my savages ruined your dance. And Tywin's like, didn't really ruin my dance, man. We still won. But Tywin was expecting them to be weak. Perhaps this, this classist, like all oh, these clansmen, they, all, they haven't fought in pitched battles. Look at how weak they are. Like they can't, maybe he thought they'd be afraid. I'm less sure of that. I think he just doesn't think much of them. Clearly it didn't bother them though. They fought, they were brave as heck. They charged into the gap. The fact that they had never fought in a battle of this type didn't seem to phase them a little. And half of them died in the battle. That didn't seem to slow them down either. So yeah, I wonder how much it was less, how much it was him thinking they were weak or anything like that, or just then it was just them, him thinking that he could lose them. Yeah, he could he afford to lose he them. He also just, didn't, you know, maybe didn't care. Like he was like, oh, I'm going to sacrifice Tyrion's men rather than. You he's know. like, yeah, who cares if they're good fighters and they fight valiantly and they do really well? Like they're going to lose and that's fine. Yeah. Anyway, um, but they so they showed they were very strong, even in that type of warfare that they weren't particularly accustomed to. They just made up for it with bravery, ferocity, and and uh, all that. It's across my mind a couple times. I bet they have better teamwork. Again, if the the armies that Taiwan has raised were probably raised recently among people who were just farmers, they're not like trained units. Yeah, and these clansmen probably are. They know each other and their tactics and their battle commands and everything else, mm. and they can work as a group better. However tough and valiant they are, I bet they also work as a team. I say that might be true in this next section. I'm not sure that's true in a situation like a pitch battle like that. It could be, but I think what we're told a lot, especially about the northern clans, the clans and the wildlings, is that they prefer individual prowess. They like try to stand out, which may not be true with these guys, but I do agree with that they work really well together when they're defending their territory or when they're ambushing and things like that. So you're, you're at least partly right, if not entirely right. And here's an example of that because they are particularly good at that style of warfare. Here's a quote from just before the Battle of the Blackwater, Tyrion 11, A Clash of Kings. Whatever you do, don't try and fight a battle, Tyrion said. Strike at their camps and baggage train. Ambush their scouts and hang the bodies from trees ahead of their line of march. Loop around and cut down stragglers. I want night attacks. So many and so sudden that they'll be afraid to sleep. Shaga laid a hand atop Tyrion's head. All this I learned from Dolph's son of Holgar before my beard had grown. This is the way of war in the mountains of the <laughs> Laid a hand atop. I was like, you're war-splaining. <laughs> you're raid-splaining. I totally know how to do this, man. This is, this is all us. This is our specialty. And notice again, Dolph's son of Holger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, bro, I totally know this stuff. This is my expertise. And again, he mentions not just his father, but his grandfather. So that's pretty cool. That, that builds that even more. They're so... And he's not blowing smoke. He's so effective at this. Shaga and his men are so good at this, along with the Black Ears and maybe some others. It's the number one reason Stannis' army fails to detect Tywin's army coming up behind them. 
which is perhaps the most crucial factor in Stannis' defeat. And it could also be our best clue or among our best clues as to the type of role they could play going forward. Ambushing, raiding, kidnapping. Shaga and the Stone Crows could be like the new Kingswood Brotherhood. Remember the outlaws of the Kingswood Brotherhood? Kingswood is between Storm's End and King's Landing, right? That's a pretty important crossing zone there. Who is coming up in that area now? Aegon and the Golden Company. Mm, What could happen if those two forces run head-to-head or at least encounter each other? Nina has a good idea that I fully support. Worth noting is that it's the Kingswood Brotherhood who attacked the train of Princess Elia Martell when Ulmer shot an arrow through the hand of Sir Gerald Hightower and allegedly stole a kiss and treasures from the princess herself, possibly while Elia was on her way to the capital to be married to Rhaegar. I fully expect Elia's niece, Arianne, to marry Aegon, Rhaegar's son, in theory, not, not likely actuality, but in presentation. <laughs> and for the two of them, To make their way to King's Landing, while I don't think they'll be completely blocked by Tyrion's clansmen, it would be a bit of a parallel if some of the new Kingswood outlaws tried to raid Elia and Aegon's train. That would be really cool, really good, uh, indeed, a parallel of that. Nina also says, in any event, I feel pretty confident that Tyrion's going to meet this band of clansmen again. Shaga is the only one of the clan leaders to have any sort of description in the appendices after A Clash of Kings, noted to be leading a band in the Kingswood. So all this time, still there. Shaga seems to have been mentioned more than any other individual clan leaders. Tyrion talks to him a lot. They have a lot of dialogue and they seem to be friendly. Like Tyrion and Shaga get along, like they joke and all that. So if Tyrion is giving Danny counsel about potential allies, he's probably going to think of that. He's probably going to think of Shaga, the Kingswood, and advise Danny that, hey, we might have two to 3,000 friendly clansmen in the Vale that we could, we could bring into the fold on our side. And yeah, that, he'd, look, he'd look around at the Dothraki around her and be like, I think you'd get along with these people. Yeah. And she, and she could even promise them, need to suggest maybe like Danny could be like Visenya, where Visenya went to Crackclaw Point and won those people. And they're still to this day good dragon men, according to Nimble Dick Crab, right? And because she came in person and met with them and won them over. Now, maybe going back to the question at our mid roll there, will Danny go to the Vale? Probably not to fight them. But if she goes there, maybe it's to recruit some clansmen or to help Tyrion do that and promise them, like, if they fight for her, she'll do something for them, bring them up in the world, help them get more, get their civil societies going, help them bring them out of poverty, something like that. Whether she actually does that, I'm not saying she would break her promise. Maybe something prevents her from that. Maybe she dies. But she could promise that and they might believe it. She's not quite the same as a lowlander. She's not the same... She's not an Andal, so they might be a little more likely to trust her, especially if Tyrion says so. They might acknowledge her as queen. The Fire Witch stuff maybe sets that up with Nettles and Sheep Stealer. It's pretty cool. A lot of this connects pretty well. How far, how separated, how likely are the Brotherhood without banners? How far are they from Vale? Not far, but there is the very important barrier. The Vale is very distinctly separated because of the Mountains of the Moon. Yeah. But... The and Riverlands is right next to it. they're split right now. Huh? And that they're split right now, too. That, that's true, yeah. So, like, you know, not all of the Brotherhood is the same distance from yeah. the Vale. So. But the, you know, the Riverlands are next to the Vale, which is next to the Kingswood. So they, all these three regions are all sort of adjacent to each other. Yeah. So well, I, I was, one of the, the groups of the Brotherhood is towards the West at this point, or yeah. about to be, anyways, uh, rather than the Vale. And the Brotherhood Without Banners is, I don't know, 
it might be more than 100 people, but it's not as big as a clan, I don't think. No, but, I, would, like, I don't know how it's a small one. But yeah. But anyway, I was just wondering if Lady Stoneheart could be a parallel to Nettles. Maybe. If she yeah. would even be aware that Lysa is dead. Yeah, she know. I think she which, she which, should know. No, maybe she doesn't know Lysa's dead. Yeah, I guess she probably does. It seems like she could know, but I don't know if she necessarily knows. And one way or the other, if she would have any motivation to go to the veil. Hmm. Well, she she's might cross paths. She's, the Brotherhood might cross paths. She's searching for Arya. That's her most like her biggest goal, apparently. Her, her um, driving, yeah, motivation, which she isn't sure. You know, she she was last seen in the Riverlands, so that's her her focus. But but we yeah, we're not in her head. We don't know exactly what she's thinking or how her brain even works <laughs> with being dead. <laughs> yeah. So to help to help perhaps remind the reader that the clans are out there that they haven't been seen in a while but that they could become important, get back on the board, come off a shelf, however, whatever metaphor works for you. Tyrion reminds us of them. At the end of A Dance of Dragons, I think it's either his last or second to last chapter, he named Shaga and Timid as examples of men who served him and benefited from it. And he's not lying, though. They did benefit from it. And so he says that to Brown Ben Plum when they're negotiating, I'll join you. And from that, the contracts follow. Tyrion signs off all this wealth to <laughs> the various members of the Second Sons. Little tangent, by the way, but that that bit reminds me of uh, Futurama when uh, Bender's trying to get Calculon to star in the movie. Will you guarantee that I win an Oscar? And Bender's, I'll guarantee anything you want. (laughs) (laughs) My word isn't worth much, but yeah, I'll say it. (laughs) Yeah, I'll guarantee you anything you want. Exactly, Tyrion was. You want a hundred thousand million gold? Yep, I'll do that. Sure, I'll write that down. Write it on this paper. I'll sign it. (laughs) Building on that idea... Here's something to consider as a possible outcome, what Tyrion might be thinking. Maybe this was an overpromise. Maybe this is exactly what he has in mind. I mean, a Lannister always pays his debts. So consider that as you hear this quote that all three of us are going to read. Little boy, man, Shagger roared. Will you mock my axe after I chop off your manhood and feed it to the goats? But Gunthor raised a hand. No, I would hear his words. The mothers go hungry and steel fills more mouths than gold. What would you give us for your lives, Tyrion, son of Tywin? Swords? Lances? Mail? All that and more, Gunthor, son of Gurn, Tyrion Lannister replied, smiling. I will give you the Veil of Aaron. So will Danny on Tyrion's, because Tyrion suggests it, promise them the Veil? <laughs> Whoa. Uh, so think of the concept of the Golden Company and their so-called Friends in the Reach. You could say Tyrion has friends in the Vale, in a sense. They're maybe not as powerful as the friends in the Reach, but they're not to be uh, denigrated. They're not, yeah, they're they're pretty pretty important. Nina says, not that I would expect the Vale clansman or Danny herself to go to the Vale proper before the end of the story. Danny might be to fly there easily, but there probably won't be many people. Well, if the better part of its forces have gone north with Sansa and Littlefinger to claim Winterfell in her name, that might make it easier. I mean, the time for them to rise up will be while the Vale Knights have all gone north. <laughs> so that could be a thing. But that precedent has been set too with Theon taking Winterfell, right? Oh, yeah, that's true. Likewise, Nina says, it's po- while it's possible Daenerys would use some of her ships to transport the clansmen to the Vale, since I doubt they'd be able to march there overland through the mountains in winter, I doubt George would spend time with a POV on this, since it would probably be no more than a political sideshow to the ultimate supernatural climax. Yeah, we may just find that the clansmen have arrived in the North and we're told with a few lines of dialogue how that happened. It doesn't need to be something that we see 
happening at the time, just something that gets, needs to be explained. But you could see uh, Nina does present some good arguments as to why some of this may not go so smoothly or may not go the way it could look like it might. But a lot could be done just with Tyrion. If they, Tyrion can say, look, I've got this dragon lady. Believe me, you've trusted me before. Trust me that it's real. <laughs> that I really do have a dragon. She really has a dragon. Follow us. She's prepared to give you the veil like I promised. That kind of thing. So yeah, Nina's right. Danny doesn't have to go there in person. She might because it would be easy to fly there, but she's also right that she'd have to go by herself if she's flying there. Who else would be there? And that, that presents its own issues. But anyway, we'll see how that sorts itself out. There's a lot of different things to think about there. Now here's another peculiar side element here that I wonder how this fits in. And it's really interesting how it accidentally fits in. Cersei's plot in A Dance with Dragons. So here's one that doesn't directly relate to the Vale's clansmen, but it might in a way that she's not even aware of. We'll explain after the quote, which is. Dorne still has friends at court. Friends who tell us things we were not meant to know. This invitation Cersei sent us is a ruse. Tristane is never meant to reach King's Landing. On the road back, somewhere in the Kingswood, Ser Balon's party will be attacked by outlaws and my son will die. I am asked to court only so that I may witness this attack with my own eyes and thereby absolve the queen of any blame. Oh, and these outlaws? They will be shouting, half man, half man, as they attack. Ser Balon may even catch a quick glimpse of the imp, though no one else will. <laughs> so it's a setup. And remember, Kingswood. They're headed through the Kingswood where we just said Shaga and his men are. And Cersei's plan is for these phantom bad guys, which are her men, are going to be yelling half-man, half-man, which is what the, the clansmen yell when they go into battle. So whether Cersei even realizes it or not, she's pinning this on Tyrion's clansmen, which is clever, maybe by accident, though, because I'm not sure she knows that they're even there, that this is part of her plan. It might be just a happy coincidence for her. But Would she know that that's their battle cry, too? That she might. She's definitely heard them say that. Like, they call him that in her presence, I'm pretty sure. But I'm not sure that she's thinking of them here. Just It's just a way to make sh- people know for sure it's Tyrion they're talking about. She, she wouldn't have heard that battle cry. She wasn't at the battle, right? I mean, even the Battle of Blackwater, she was inside, right? She wouldn't have heard any of these battle cries. So she might have gotten reports of it. Yes, absolutely. She might have gotten reports of it, which is because she could have definitely heard that from other people. But it is, it's it's peculiar. And it comes back to this whole thing we were just talking about with Nina's idea of maybe they'll attack someone in the, uh, in Aegon's party, perhaps even Arianne's party, which who are already in the Kingswood right now. (laughs) And so it could be a really funny, like irony where they really did attack or they attack Cersei's ambushers. Like Cersei's fang, fake <laughs> ambushers are actually ambushed by real ambushers, like the Stone Crows, <laughs> or something along these lines, like the ambushers getting ambushed. Or, yeah, there's just a lot of funny possibilities how this could actually work out, given that there really are people who would yell half man. <laughs> and there are these Clearly, I cannot ambush the party in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and it's also funny that Cersei has entrusted Balon Swan, who's a bad liar. He's a terrible liar. He's not good at lying. He's a knightly guy. He really follows this. He really fits into the knighthood element. He, he, he's born to that role. He's uncomfortable with, with telling the tr- mistruths and things like that. This whole thing is a poor choice for, to use him for this. He's a bad liar. And we wonder who that friend at court is. Probably Varys. Probably Varys spilling the beans here, but we don't know for sure. 
But it's another example of friends at friends in the reach, friends at court, friends in the veil. Yeah. So yeah, this is really fun. I think this is super hard to to see, but piecing it all together, you have all these potential ambushes and you know, potential foils to ambushes and potential kidnappings, potential history repeating itself, all sorts of possibilities. You no, know, these. I'm just mostly heartwarmed by all these people having friends. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not often you see adults making a, a friends. <laughs> Who says a song of ice and fire isn't uplifting? All yeah. these friendships. The real song of ice and fire are the friends in the reach we made along the way. <laughs> Last but not least for potential situations for the clansmen to insert themselves into, other than ones that we just haven't thought of. There's obviously things that we just, George could surprise us with. But the, the, this one is Elaine and the Tourney of the Winged Knights, which could be kidnapping Sansa or others or allying with Sansa, maybe because they become aware of the fact that she's Tyrion's wife, technically still, and they respect him. Maybe the idea of migrating to a place that might be more accepting to them, going north to where their cultural background originates, that might be appealing to them. After all, Shaga wasn't like, yeah, let's go back to the mountains of the moon. He's like, oh, Kingswood better, man. It's warmer here. There's more food. Like, maybe they're not, they're not that tied to their, to the Vale. Show us a better place to live. We might be willing to go there. And they're not like, no, we only can live in the Vale. Maybe some of them are like that, but clearly not Shaga. Nina's not a big fan of this theory. Uh, the clans are on the wrong side of the bloody gate for this. Like some of them are, are not able, it would be a difficult logistically for this to happen, let alone them even knowing that it's happening. Do they even know? what? Why would they, why would they want to capture Elaine, specifically? She's no, they don't know she's Sansa. I mean, they would just want to capture women, and she could be among the many women they would try to take. But they wouldn't necessarily target her specifically. So that's a good point. Also, it's already set up that someone else is going to kidnap Sansa, and that's uh, Sir Sadrick the Mad Mouse. So what is this, just who's going to get her first kind of thing? Or is it just maybe we're fooled a little bit by the proximity of these clansmen and, and their setup is for Tyrion's stuff coming a little later and not this gate to the moon plot. On the other hand, we're, that history that we saw of the, he built the Aerie because the gates of the moon are vulnerable. This is happening at the gates of the moon. So, yeah, I, I appreciate Nina's counter argument. I'm not totally sold that it's not possibly, but I do agree with her that it seems more likely that Sir Shadrick is what we're looking at here. There's no real foreshadowing for Sansa and the clans other than her not wanting to be around them because she was scared of Chella, which I don't think that even counts as foreshadowing. That's just one of the few things I can even think of that she has to say about them. So yeah, maybe it's not set up, which is a pretty good argument for maybe not being a thing. Well, so we'll leave it on the shelf as a possibility, but maybe a remote possibility. So Nina's arguments were pretty good there. What's that? On the shelf. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Well, point. I should point out that I actually got me onto Discord. So I've put a few comments in there about... I saw you there. Better Call Saul and the boys. I've got a lot of thoughts too in my brain about how they're using color in Better Call Saul. I might post about that. Cool. Yeah, that'd be very nice. Uh, the color stuff on Better Call Saul is really interesting. They really do a lot with that. And you can join our Discord if you go to bit to bit.ly. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash how Discord. Nice and easy. Yeah. And you can also join our Facebook group. We also have discussions going on there. Either one. Uh, we used to have more discussion spots. We've narrowed it down to these two main ones. That's probably better. Keeps it a little simpler for us. Mm. More concentrated. Simpler for us and for the listener. 
Yeah. Okay. The answer to the trivia question, first of all, let's repeat it. The question was, who says this line? And the quote is... All movement stopped. Tyrion saw the glint of moonlight on metal. Our mountain, a voice called out from the trees, deep and hard and unfriendly. Our goat. Your goat, Tyrion agreed. Who are you? The answer is Shaga. Shaga, in fact, gave you a kind of a... Almost, it's almost tricky when I pick a, an easier answer because you expect it to be hard. I'm, I've made these questions pretty hard. But no, it is Shaga. The next person to speak is Gunthor, but oh. it's explicitly a different person. It's, it's, it says, when Shaga speaks, it's like, it, 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 Tyrion thinks that that's the voice of the... Yeah, Gunthor is the second person to speak. Shaga is first, and then he's identified a minute later. But yep, congrats if you got that one right. If not, well, there's always next time. Next time is not next week, however. We are not on next Sunday. We're going to focus on some of our scripted content this Father's week. Father's Day next Sunday. It is also Father's so, Day so, next you know, Sunday. This is your heads up. I guess at least in the U.S. it's Father's Day. I, yeah. I guess it isn't international. True, true. So we'll be back, though, the week after with an episode on Relore. Yes, y'all have chosen Relore. Patrons chose Relore, beating out the free city of Lys, Castle of Dragonstone, and House Malister of Seaguard. Those were the other choices, and Relore was the winner. So that'll be on June 26th, Sunday. No episode June 19th. But like I said, I'll be focusing on our scripted episodes. Hopefully get at least one of them finished. There's two that are close. Mm. So we'll see how that goes. Which two are close? The Dance of the Dragons and the Johanna or Lomas? Or? Johanna is close and Lomas is close-ish. Yeah, oh. so those are those are coming. And like Lomas is close-ish, but it also has art that it's waiting on. So yeah. there's that part. Yeah, Lomas is going to have some cool art in it. We've got Wonders of the World. It's one of the most fun things for artists to envision and imagine because they're so epic and George's wonders are very wondrous. Yeah, so. So I guess this is a good time for me to say I am commissioning art for that episode, but if you happen to be listening to this and you want to draw yourself a, a wonder of the world some any of Lomas's observations, then I will be happy to feature it in our episode if you feel the call. So, As well, since we didn't have a lot of real world talk this episode, if you have connections you want us to explore a little further or maybe mention as part of a QA or just in our mid-roll when we take questions, send us some ideas or at least maybe tell us where we can get started. Sometimes it only takes, say, a clue or two for us to find the trail and that opens up a whole new world of knowledge for some of us or a lot of us or what have you. We do exploring the real world influences whenever possible, but we don't always have time for them. So that's my call to you. And we did mention a couple of our other episodes in addition to ones that we have on the way. We mentioned House Royce. That's uh, an important one with regards to that. Uh, History of the Vale in particular. And first men in the Vale. You mentioned buildings of Brandon. And oh, good call. I did mention the buildings of Brandon, that whole Sandor Aria wall building anecdote, but there's a lot of other stuff in there as well. A lot of supernatural stuff, children of the forest, giants, magic of the how does the magic of Storm's End relate to the magic of Blood Raven's Cave and the wall and what's the connection there? Ooh. That part's in that part of the episode in that part of the episode it's called The Children of the Fortress. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for attending. If you came live, thank you for questions. If you sent them, appreciate you joining the chat if you did that. Also, just appreciate you listening whenever you listen or watch. It's really important to us. We feel very privileged to be able to do this almost every Sunday and in between 
It's a great thing. And thank you to Nina, goodqueenalley.tumblr.com. Check her out. Lots of great blog posts, lots of great takes on a variety of the Song of Ice and Fire topics. Remember, that's Good Queen Alley with one L. Thank you very much to all our patrons, whether you support us directly through Patreon or through, through straight donations or through the Spotify subscription. You're all patrons, whether you're on Patreon or not. It's the same thing. It's support is support is support. Doesn't really matter which venue it comes through. We appreciate it all the same. Same goes for any of you who spread the word via word of mouth or by rating and reviewing us. That helps as well. Big girl. Oh, look at the cat there. She's looking good. Pretty girl. (laughs) So also thanks to Joey, Jesse, and Kevin for our music. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro Mm -hmm. and maps you see behind me. Go to (laughs) claradocs.de to get your own copies of those maps. Thanks as well to our mods on Facebook and Discord who help keep the discussions going, keeping it clean and uh, regular, so to speak. And that's it for today, everybody. Until next time, you know what to do. Bellar, reread us. <laughs>